Internet scam artists and con men. We deserve to be protected from corrupt companies like Poker Stars, which was indicted by the U.S. government for illegal gambling, bank fraud, and money laundering, and paid $731 million to avoid criminal conviction. Poker Stars' parent company recently had its headquarters raided as part of an investigation into violation of securities laws. But this hasn't stopped Poker Stars from lobbying our state legislature to allow them to participate in online poker here in California, gaining access to every computer, tablet, and smartphone in the state. This is not right, and we deserve better. Please go to findyourrep.legislature.ca.gov to contact your state legislator and tell them to keep bad actors like poker stars out of AB 431 and out of California. Paid for by the Viejas Band of Kumeyaay Indians. Well, if it's paid for by the Indians, of course it has to be true. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Tellus. This is being broadcast live and recorded live on January 24th, 2020. The time right now, 9.26 p.m. Friday night here. We have a free roll as we just about always do on this show, which we run once a week. This week, the free roll is $73. I mentioned last week that Eric Benzamokin left us $50 for last week, $50 for this week. I'm delaying that $50 because we got some money this week. So I'm going to hold over that 50 for next week. But this week we do have $73 to give away in our free roll. 30 for first, 20 for second, 13 for third, 10 for fourth. That's uh, 30, 20, 13, and 10. The money came from Mr. Smith, 9999 from Norway. He generously sent me $53 and even suffered the loss in exchange rate when sending me the money. But uh, thank you very much to him. And also Flipper Fair, $20 from him. Thank you very much, Flipper Fair, for your donation. This starts at 9.35 Pacific time on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. You still have eight minutes to get in there before tournaments start. And you have over half an hour to get in there with late registration because there's 25 minutes after the start time that exists for you to sit down with a full stack, just like at the World Series, which you can do on day two, which is stupid. But (laughs) we don't have a day two late registration. We have a 25 minutes late registration for those that are not there at the very beginning. Sometimes we begin the show after the free roll starts, which is a bit embarrassing, but this time we did not. Uh, we're going to have Trader Ruski on tonight, our usual co-host, and we actually have uh, Poker Stars, or Poker Stars, that's, I played the Poker Stars ad, which was aimed at uh, California, as you heard. This was during the battle about five years ago to legalize online poker in the state of California, and the reason it hasn't happened yet is because of that battle you heard about in that commercial where the tribes that are contracted with Poker Stars want poker stars in the state, and those that don't have poker stars are afraid that poker stars will beat them, and they don't want poker stars in the state. We've gone over that situation before. I just thought that would be a nice opening to the show, since we have a few poker stars topics tonight, including breaking news, which is really not being covered anywhere else. I shouldn't say anywhere else. Uh, it's on Forbes, which is a strange place for a story like this, but Forbes is covering it, and really no other media is covering it. I tweeted about it this morning, and then someone either saw my tweet or saw the Forbes article and has since posted it to 2 Plus 2, which isn't getting much action there. 
So we're going to talk all about our main story tonight, which is the Isai Scheinberg arrest. Yes, Isai Scheinberg was finally arrested after nine years. Someone asked, I thought this was all done. I thought this was all over with. No, it is not all over with. It's not all done. Isai himself has never faced justice. So we're going to talk all about that tonight as our top story. And I have some other PokerStars-related content tonight, which I'll get to during the agenda. If you want to call into the show, as always, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. You can also call the Mount Charleston line, 702-430-1808, 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line, separate line into the show. It is a old 70s rotary phone sitting on top of Mount Charleston, about 45 minutes away by car from Las Vegas. There is snow there. Our phone still works. If you want to text the show, don't text the Mount Charleston line. It's an old 70s phone. But you can text the main phone number, 775-372-8355 is the text number. You can text me before, after, or during the show, and I probably will respond to you. Uh, By the way, if there's anything you want me to cover on this show, text it to me. Sometimes the stuff I cover on here came from listeners who are texting me, hey, have you heard about this? Have you heard about that? And don't feel bad if I've already heard about it. Often I have, but often I haven't, too. I have had a lot of good subjects brought to me by people texting me, and then I learned about something going on I didn't know was happening before, and it becomes an interesting topic for this show. So if you want to text me to cover something you think would be good for this show, definitely do so. I can't guarantee I'll cover it. And one thing I can guarantee you is that I will never get mad at you or annoyed at you if I already know about it. So never feel afraid or uncomfortable to text me a story you think that should be covered here or you'd like to hear covered here. The, the more the better. I'm always looking out for interesting stories to cover because, let's face it, every week I've got to come up with new content to talk about for hours here. Some weeks there's a ton of stuff to talk about. Some weeks it's kind of light. Last week there's a lot. This week, not so much. And then I found out about the Isai Scheinberg thing this morning and I said, oh, good, perfect timing. Yesterday, I would not have had this. Even though it happened a week ago, nobody knew about it until today. We have a free roll, as I mentioned, that starts at 9.35. You've got three more minutes to get in. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. That's the list of rules. That's not where you play the free roll. It's a list of rules on qualifying for the free money. Also, make sure you understand the login to the free roll is not the same as the login to the forum or main pokerfraudalert.com. So don't just go to pokerfraudalert.com and try to log in with your free roll, uh, with, with your poker room login, or you won't be able to get into the free roll, or vice versa. Don't try to log into the poker room with your login from the forum. They're two separate accounts you have to make on Poker Fraud Alert. One is for the poker room, one is for the main pokerfraudalert.com forum and the rest of the site. So understand that. I get that question nearly every week. Oh, my password doesn't work. I can't understand it. Yes, because you're logging into the wrong place or you're using the wrong login and password. You're using the one from the forum in the poker room or vice versa. The chat room, you log into that the same way you log into the forum and mainpokerfraudalert.com. That requires a flash-enabled device. You won't get in there if you have an iPhone or iPad and you're trying to use that, but 
Computers can probably get in as long as they have Flash enabled. And you need a Poker Fraud Alert forum account in good standing, meaning I had to have validated it at some point. If you just sign up right now, you won't be able to get in there. But you can chat during the live show with other listeners of the show. Don't bother to go chat there during the archives or any other time because you'll be talking to yourself. I mean, you can, but I would seek help if that's what you've been doing. Gonna grab Traderuski. Let's just grab him right now. What's happening, Jeff? Traderuski, hello. Welcome to the show. How you doing tonight? I'm doing okay. And we're uh, going to talk about some interesting stuff tonight. A lot of the stuff we're talking about tonight, you're not going to find in mainstream poker news this week or mainstream gambling news. Sometimes we talk about a lot of things that everybody else is talking about. Some weeks we talk about things that you're really not going to find being discussed anywhere else. And this is one of those nights. So uh, here's the agenda, and we will get going. Poker Stars founder Isai Scheinberg was arrested on Friday the 17th to face the 2011 criminal charges that were brought against him for running an illegal poker site, being Poker Stars. He's been dodging this for nine years. He has stayed away from the U.S. for nine years. He has finally been arrested. I will explain why. And I'll give you all the details, and I'll give you some background, I'll give you everything regarding the Isai Scheinberg arrest, at least as far as what we know right now, including a detail that even if you've been following this story, you may not know. We're also going to go back to 2011, and we're going to talk again about something that always bothered me, and what especially bothered me about it is how very few people would acknowledge it to be true, even though it is 100% true. And that is the fact that poker stars in 2011, when they cashed out people's frequent player points after they shut down because of Black Friday, that they stole probably in excess of $10 million from the players. They did. They did it Superman 3 style, if you know what I mean by that. Definitely happened. Definitely was intentional. Nobody, or I shouldn't say nobody, very few people would acknowledge this at the time. I tried to shout it from the mountaintops, and people either wouldn't listen to me or told me I was wrong. Nine years later, I looked at it again after reading this Isai Scheinberg news, and I still assert that I was correct. In fact, the mathematics backs me up. You can't argue with basic math. And the mathematics back me up here. And I will tell you why nobody remembers this. I'll tell you why people didn't agree with me. I'll tell you why this did not become a scandal. And I will tell you how much I blame Isai Scheinberg himself for this. We've talked about this before on the show many years ago, but I want to bring it up again. A lot of you weren't listening back then. A lot of you forgot the details. Even I forgot some of the details. I had to go back and review my own posts about this to fully understand it again. Self-styled sports betting king Rob Gorodetsky, who also plays some poker, he we talked about him on this show a while back, and he was claiming that he was one of the best sports bettors of all time, that he made a fortune betting sports at very high limits, and that he admitted not knowing much about the games. He claimed he just did it on gut feel, that he was the winningest sports better out there just going by gut feel. And amazingly, he got a lot of athletes and celebrities following him and betting along with his picks. Now, everybody who knew anything about sports betting at the time said this guy is a complete phony, a complete fraud, and there's no chance this guy is what he says he is. 
I know you're probably shocked, but Rob Gorodetsky was arrested for embezzling millions of dollars to fund his gambling habit. He wasn't actually a winner in betting sports. Who would have guessed? I have an update on Prahlad Friedman. He continues to tweet the most bizarre stuff. Most of it with the all males are actually gay and in the closet theme. And when I say all males, I mean, he really means all males. If you're male and human, he thinks that you have gay fantasies. You have to. Not possible that you don't. We talked about that last week, but he, he's doubling down on it. And he's also tweeting other wacky stuff. So we're going to read some more Prahlad Friedman tweets. This guy is just insane. And a huge hypocrite. Absolutely huge hypocrite. That's what bothers me the most about this guy. WorldSeriesOfPoker.com is back in a little bit of controversy. A player on WSOP.com claims that the site did a Super Bowl drawing. That is a Super Bowl package of a a trip to Vegas, blah, blah, blah. uh, That they did the drawing for this package on the wrong day. And this person believes that he and everybody else who played for this package to win tickets for the sweepstakes deserves all their rake back. I will tell you the details and whether I agree with him. And by the way, I have some inside information on this situation. See, I, I sometimes get the goods. Sometimes I get the goods that others don't get. The World Series of Poker released another update. Announcing more events. Still not the complete schedule. Just a little bit at a time. Where they're, they're feeding us a little bit at a time. They're not letting us binge on World Series of Poker schedules. We are being fed a little bit more of the schedule each week. It's very weird. So we got even more this week involving more freeze-out events, plus a carnival-style bounty event that I will explain when we get to that segment. How is PokerStars Pennsylvania doing? It's not owned by Isai Scheinberg, by the way. He sold PokerStars a while ago. But how is PokerStars Pennsylvania doing? Well, they raked $2.5 million in December 2019. I will tell you during that segment how that is, whether that's good or bad. I have an update on the Target toothbrush viral tweet we talked about last week. It's a little bit different than what I thought it was last week. In fact, I, I have to admit I'm a bit ashamed to have covered the whole thing. But I'll give you an update on that. Finally, an an opinion piece that has nothing to do with poker or gambling. And it's an opinion piece that is not political at all. So you can enjoy or hate this piece regardless of whether you agree with me politically. This is something that has nothing to do with politics. And there's people who agree with me and disagree with me on both sides of the political fence because this really is apolitical. This is about tipping. American tipping culture, you may not know this if you haven't left the United States, but other countries don't do tipping the same way we do. Canada, it's somewhat similar, but Europe, very different. Asia, very different. The the American tipping culture is looked at as being kind of insane by much of the rest of the world. And while often other countries criticizing U.S. culture or the U.S. government or other aspects of the U.S. that they just don't understand very well, that usually annoys me, and I rarely agree with it. But this is one case where I agree the Europeans are right about tipping. It's out of control in the U.S., 
And I'm going to make the case that people who tip in America are mainly doing it to make themselves feel good rather than actually helping anyone. And you might say, that's not true about me. I, I'm doing it to help the servers. I'm doing it to help the valets. I'm doing it to help the bellmen. I'm doing it to help uh, anybody else I tip. You may think you are, but you're not. I'm going to explain why in that segment. And by the way, I'm not just using the segment to make excuses to be a cheap Jew and not tip. I do tip because I kind of have to tip, but I hate the whole culture. I wish it would go away. So I will explain that in our final segment. That's our agenda for this evening. Our final show, actually not our final show, probably our second to last show of January. I forgot that January 31st exists, and we'll probably have our next show on January 31st. You know what? No, actually, we're not. I just realized we, well, I can't say for sure. It's going to be a funny schedule next week because of the Super Bowl weekend, because I have something to do. So I've got to figure out when to squeeze in the show. There will be a show next week. I'm just not sure what night yet. Anyway, let's get going here. So I want to talk about Isai Scheinberg and what has happened to him. I guarantee you're going to hear the most coverage of this on this show than anywhere else you can find on the Internet. Maybe the story will catch on. It'll be covered more somewhere else at some point. But right now, this is the best resource right here. And I'm being honest about that. So Isai Scheinberg was the founder of Poker Stars. He was the one who started it all. And he was actually a very important figure in poker and especially online poker. I mean, there's no doubt that poker would be vastly different if it was not for Isai Scheinberg. Poker and online poker would be tremendously different. Not just poker stars. Let's say he was never born, okay? Let's say he was never born, so he never existed. His sons never existed who helped him run poker stars. Let's say no Scheinbergs. They just weren't born, okay? There would be no poker stars. But that would have had a tremendous impact, and not a positive one, a negative one, on online poker in the U.S., everywhere else, and poker everywhere else. So... Isai Scheinberg, it's important. I'm, I'm going to be fair about him. I'm going to tell you the good things about him, which it's mostly good. I actually don't have a negative opinion of the guy. If I, over the years, I've actually softened in my opinion of Isai Scheinberg. For years, I was very bitter over the FPP value stealing that they did, which I still stand by. I still stand by that that happened, and I'm still pissed about it. But I have also been able to look past that and see the good that Isai Scheinberg has done for poker, and I've also heard stories about him, which were good stories, to where, I mean, nobody's perfect, and overall, I will tell you right away that I think Isai Scheinberg was very much a net positive for poker. If you have made money playing poker in the last 16, 17 years, you probably made more because Isai Scheinberg existed and got involved with poker like he did. If he didn't exist, you would have made less in poker. I would have made less in poker. So, yes, it wasn't only his doing that we had a poker boom. Poker wouldn't be dead without Isai Scheinberg, but he was a big part of it. And it wasn't just one action. It wasn't just, like people say, well, Chris Moneymaker, he had a huge influence on the game. He did, that's true. But Chris Moneymaker had the huge influence basically by one action. That was by getting lucky at the 2003 World Series of Poker and having a perfect name and story for the situation. An amateur who deposits 
less than 100 bucks online, wins his way into the main event of the World Series, wins the main event of the World Series for $2.5 million, looks, acts, and plays like an everyman, has a name, moneymaker. It was perfect. You couldn't have scripted that better. But what did Chris really do beyond that? Nothing. I mean, he was, he's a nice guy. He, uh, he's he been a good ambassador for the game. He has a gambling problem, but so do many people. But he's always been nice when I've talked to him. He's seems like a, a pretty good guy, Chris Moneymaker. Not that responsible, but a, a good guy, a nice guy, a good ambassador for the game. But at the same time, uh, the, the main thing he did was win a tournament at a very convenient time. And he happened to have a personal story and name that helped fuel the poker boom. But Eli Scheinberg had an influence on poker much greater than that because he did a lot of things to bring on the poker boom. He did a lot of things to bring people's interest to poker. He did a lot of things to bring quality poker software and set the standard for that. There's many things Eli Scheinberg did, and you have to recognize that. I remember when it was suggested that he should be in the Poker Hall of Fame. And when I first heard that, I got, no, he shouldn't be. And then I thought about it, and I even listened to the 2 plus 2 poker cast when they discussed that. And, I, and yeah, the, yeah, the poker stars gave them a lot of money over the years, like a lot of money, to where I was jealous. <laughs> but putting that aside, you know, I listened to Adam and Terrence talk about it, and I said, you know, they're actually right. They're actually right. He does deserve to be in the Poker Hall of Fame. He did have a tremendous positive influence on poker. Now, this wasn't selfless. He was doing this to make money. He was running Poker Stars as a business. It was a business that made him tremendous money. It made his son tremendous money. And whenever somebody makes tremendous money through a business, you can admire them and you can look up to them. But you can't say that they're doing it for the people. He didn't do it for the people. But that just because you run a successful business to make money doesn't make you a bad person. You can be a good business owner. You can be a good business owner that overall gives uh, brings a net positive into many people's lives, even if you're originally setting out to help yourself. So here is the things that uh, I liked about Isai Scheinberg. And uh, he's not the owner of Poker Stars anymore, by the way. He sold to Amaya, I think, in 2014. So he has nothing to do with Poker Stars for the last several years. And he, he was pretty much forced to because uh, Poker Stars was not going to get licensed in the U.S. And they, it was just time for him to go. So he, he had to leave Poker Stars. It wasn't really compatible anymore. To have him there. But here's what I like about him. He was the pioneer of the online poker tournament. I don't know if he personally brought online poker tournaments, but he was at the helm. He was the one in charge when poker stars took the next step in online poker. Prior to that, online poker was cash. Online poker, you'd go on and play cash games. That was it. So there were sites that existed a few years before poker stars, but you couldn't play tournaments. Now, I'm not going to say there were zero sites of tournaments. Maybe there were, maybe they weren't. I, I wasn't aware of any with tournaments prior to poker stars introducing them, I think, in late 2002. But if they were, they, they weren't major sites. Like, there weren't tournaments on Paradise Poker or, or uh, Party Poker or uh, Planet Poker or True Poker. None of those had tournaments at the time. 
uh, Poker Stars brought the poker tournament into the online poker mix. And it may seem obvious to you, but at the time it wasn't happening. They did it. They did it well. They promoted it well. And they were already there in place for the poker boom to exist. In fact, they created the poker boom because of uh, Chris Moneymaker won the seat to the main event through them, which in a way you could look at and say that that also created the poker boom because without the tournaments they were running as satellites to the main event of the World Series, there would have been no Chris Moneymaker. He would have existed, but we would not have known him, nor would he have been an influential figure in poker. So they had those tournaments in place. That's how he won his way in. Online poker tournaments also fueled the cash games, and this created just a tremendous growth in online poker because what would happen would be a lot of people would sign up to play tournaments, and a lot of times the people who'd win tournaments would then go take the money to play cash. And the tournament players tended to not be very good cash game players, so they would have a lot of money to feed the cash games. I know this because I was beating those people. That's, that's how I was making a lot of my money around that time in the 2000s, was beating tournament players who were good tournament players but not good cash players, and they'd sit down and, and lose it to me and, and other good cash players. But this really drove the success of online poker, the online poker tournament. Now, yes, other sites then added it as well, and they got also large, but uh, not as large as poker stars did. They they became the number one very quickly. So he was kind of the pioneer of the online poker tournament. He also was the pioneer of quality online poker software. And that's something that can't be overlooked. And in fact, it's something that we don't always have today since we can't play on poker stars in the U.S. Uh, Bovada and Ignition, it's it's notoriously buggy. America's Card Room, notoriously buggy. I mean, the truth is the the software that we play on in the U.S. these days in 2020 is worse and much more buggy than the PokerStars software in 2003, which is very sad. There, there should be tremendously better software today than 17 years ago, but in poker there's actually not because Stars set such a high standard right away. They did it right, right off the bat. And this encouraged other sites, not all of them, obviously, but this encouraged a lot of other sites to do better software-wise in order to keep up. Otherwise, PokerStars is going to crush them. Full Tilt also had excellent software. UB, despite all their other issues, they had good software. But uh, And yes, UB existed before uh, PokerStars did. But uh, not by much, though. I, I forgot which came first. I think UB came first. But anyway... Um, the, the big sites all had to meet that standard of good software, or otherwise they, they were only going to grow so big. There were a number of sites out there that had crap software, and some of them I played on because they, they were soft, but the very successful sites had good software because PokerStars, right off the bat, just came out with great software. And Isai Scheinberg was actually a software guy. So he was not just a businessman who got into something that had a software element to it. He was actually a software guy. In fact, he started a software company in 2000 called PYR Software, based out of Toronto, to develop software for online poker companies. So he got the idea back in 2000, seeing that uh, there were some online poker sites running, like Planet Poker, 
and thought, hey, you know, these sites are not that good. They're kind of primitive looking. Let's let's make some good online poker software. And then, <laughs> see, shopping it around, going, hey, uh, d- does anyone want to license my software? And they're like, no, no, we're good. We'll, we'll stick with what we have. So he's finally in two thousand one. He and his son said, you know what? Screw it. Let's just start our own company with our own software. And that that was really the beginning of PokerStars. It didn't launch until two thousand two. But they. Uh, this was the first online poker software that was designed for tournament play. Just right off the bat, they, they had poker tournaments. I remember being in the Hustler Casino in Gardena, California, and I was hearing people talk about it. Do you know there's, there's tournaments now on, on, on PokerStars? What's PokerStars? Oh, it's this new online poker site, and they have tournaments. Oh, cool. i got to get on there. Like, I heard that conversation in 2002 with the Hustler. And it grew from there. So he was a software guy. So he, he knew he wasn't just one of these suits who had money to invest or an idea to start an online poker site. This was a software guy who knew that you come to the game with quality software. You don't come with crap software and figure it doesn't matter that much. And th- this is a lesson that many modern companies could learn. But Scheinberg said, nope, it's going to be great software. He built great software. Nobody wanted to buy it. So he's like, okay, we're going we're to run it ourselves. So these are all things to admire. These are all good things he did. These things had influence in the industry in a positive way. Here's some other things he did that were positive. Again, these are not things that are selfless or for the people, but these are still positive. He treated his employees well, by all accounts. I never worked for PokerStars, so I can't say that from personal experience, but... I've known some people who have worked for him. In fact, uh, Michael Josem, who was a guest on this show last year, he worked for PokerStars for many years. And he had very nice things to say about his time there and the people he worked with and Esai himself. So everybody loved Esai Scheinberg who worked for him. Esai Scheinberg was not one of these awful bosses where you're you're, you're working for him because you like the job or you you like the company or it pays well, but you, you hate the guy in charge or you think the CEO is a jerk. He wasn't like this at all. This was someone who was known to be very loyal to his employees, someone who treated them very well, treated them with respect, paid them very well. This was really the model big boss to have if, if you're going to work for a company. So that's something that didn't affect me directly, but it, it affected me and everybody else indirectly because you'll notice with poker stars, they didn't have incompetent people working there. Even the support, you'd, the email support, it seemed like intelligent people worked there. You weren't getting monkeys giving you uh, cut and paste crappy responses. You didn't always agree with them. Sometimes they were very petty, but you could tell you were dealing with Support reps who were more intelligent than the average support rep. The, the support for poker stars was known to be excellent. That was one of their big strengths, as was their software, as was their traffic they got. They, they were just doing so many things right. And so part of the reason that they had very competent employees there, even at the lower levels, was because this was a good place to work. They paid well, and therefore uh, good people stuck around. And when you dealt with poker stars, you were dealing with uh, a class operation. 
He also loved poker, personally. He played in the World Series of Poker in the 90s. So this was somebody who, again, wasn't just a businessman saying, hey, I bet we can make money with online poker. Let's do it. I don't know much about it, but let's throw some money at it and put something together. This wasn't him. This was a guy who personally loved and had a passion for poker and the community, and this is a person who personally loved and had a passion for software. So, if you'll notice, if you think back to Poker Stars, were there any carnival games on Poker Stars when Scheinberg was in charge? No. Were there any jackpots? No. Were there any casino games? No. Was there sports betting? No. What was on Poker Stars? One thing, poker. And everything on Poker Stars at the time, I'm not talking about today's Poker Stars, which is very different different owners. But when he was in charge, all you could do on Poker Stars is go on, play poker, and pay rake. That was it. There were tournaments, of course, but the, there, there was nothing else to do but play poker, and there's no other way to win than just winning at a cash table or winning at uh, a tournament. That was it. It was very pure. Could he have made more money introducing other things that are more gambly? or weird carnival-type variants of poker, or casino games. You know, could, he could have added blackjack and other games like that, or he could have uh, done sports betting. He, he could have done a lot of things to make more money, but he chose not to. He wanted it to be purely poker, and he gave up on extra profits that he knew he could have had to keep to that vision, and that's something to admire. That was something that I wouldn't say it's selfless, but there was something principled. It was something where... He believed a poker site should just be about poker, and that's what he wanted to stick to. He passed on any other opportunity to make money doing other things with poker stars. He ran a high-quality operation, and that helped fuel the online poker boom. Smaller sites that had action on it, and I played on a lot of those. I made a lot of money on sites that were not poker stars. I won on poker stars too, of course, but... I also made a lot of money on sites that were not as good as PokerStars, had crappy software, had crappy support, ones that fell short of PokerStars in many ways, but I played on them because they had better games, because they had a lot of fish and not that many sharks knew about these sites. So I played on those. What does this have to do with Scheinberg? Because there was such interest in online poker, because PokerStars was such a good product, because PokerStars brought us Chris Moneymaker with, with their tournaments because poker stars brought so many people into the game and then some of them would branch out to play on these other sites as well. This is what allowed a lot of these smaller sites to exist is he really helped make the industry grow so much that smaller competitors, which otherwise probably could not have survived, were able to also exist and make money at the time. Eventually, most of them closed or got bought by other networks because uh, the poker boom eventually died. And uh, especially Black Friday was a big factor in that as well. That was probably the biggest factor in causing that to happen. But at the time, those sites lived because of poker stars in part. I am personally a lot more wealthy thanks to the actions of Isai Scheinberg. Many people listen to this show can say the same thing. Overall, he was excellent for poker. 
in general, from everything I've heard of him personally and the way he ran his company, the way he treated his employees, he seemed to be a decent guy. So for all of that, I have a positive opinion of him. And I have to put aside my gripes with a few things. With my, As far as doing overall assessment, you, you can't take something you're angry about and have that override everything else the person did. Nobody's perfect, and everybody makes mistakes, and you have to look at the big picture when judging someone. That's not to say that a good person just gets a free pass to screw up or do bad things, but when coming up with an overall judgment of a stranger you don't really know personally, you have to look at the big picture, not just focus on one thing, unless the one thing's really terrible. If he's a murderer or a child molester, okay, then you have to say all this stuff doesn't matter, but Nothing like that, obviously, with him. Also, very important, he ran the company responsibly. So when Black Friday came down, turned out full tilt, ran it irresponsibly, and had stolen all the money on deposit. UB, big surprise, they ran the company irresponsibly, even after the cheating scandal, and stole all the money on deposit. Guess who had all the money on deposit and who also had $750 million on hand to buy full tilt? which then was used to make the cheated players from Full Tilt whole. Now, this wasn't an act of philanthropy. This was something they did to get poker stars out of trouble, basically. The the government brought a case against poker stars itself, and Isai Scheinberg and others. But the case against poker stars with the U.S. government was resolved by poker stars agreeing to pay a $750 million fine, which then was used to pay back the players for full tilt and many years later, UB. But this was not PokerStars' responsibility. This is just where the money ended up going. And also a lot of it went to the government. And in return, they got full tilt poker, which they ran for a short time and shut down anyway. So you would not have gotten back your full tilt money. You would not have gotten back your UB money if it was not for PokerStars and the responsible management of their money and their business that allowed them to not only pay you when they got busted, unlike the other two, but also to have the money to buy their way out of trouble, which then was used to pay you for the money that Full Tilt and UB stole from you. That's important, too, that, he, that it was being run responsibly. I hate to give someone credit for running something responsibly. I hate to say, Isai Scheinberg, you get a thumbs up for not being a thief. You get a thumbs up for not spending our money you're holding from us. But but sadly, yes, yes, you have to say that because unfortunately in, this, in the industry, that's not standard. That's not something you can just expect, that all the money that is on deposit on these poker sites really exists. And if they were to shut down tomorrow, they could pay everybody. I doubt Bovada and Ignition could do that if they shut down. I, I doubt they have separate accounts. I, I'm sure that they don't have everything there. I don't think they're close to broke, but I, I I don't think they have everything there. I don't think they have our money just sitting and waiting for all of us. They just assume they're not shutting down. I think just about every non-regulated site that is running is probably run that way, where they just take the money on deposit and keep enough of the cash outs, keep some more than that, keep operating money, and, and that's it. That's my guess. So that's – it was a big deal that they did it right. It, it shouldn't be. It should be something that everybody does, but it hasn't been. So 
credit to Issa Scheinberg for that as well. So let's get into what happened here. Of uh, This is all old stuff. We could have been discussing this years ago, what I'm saying right now. Let's get to the present. It turns out on January 17th, 2020, exactly a week ago today, Isai Scheinberg boarded a plane to the United States. And when he got off the plane, he was promptly arrested. Now, how did that happen? He's been avoiding this for nine years. Black Friday happened on April 15th, 2011. We're in the end of January 2020. And Isai Scheinberg has just elected to not come to the U.S. because uh, he did not want to face charges. So he's been a wanted man for nine years, and that's the way it has been. So what has changed nine years later to where Isai would finally be arrested? Well, first of all, he voluntarily came to the U.S., knowing that the second he stepped off the plane that he was going to be arrested. But the reason this whole thing changed was because a few months ago, federal prosecutors decided that they're going to try to extradite him. I don't know why. Uh, I don't know what fueled this, why all of a sudden federal prosecutors decided they're going to try to extradite him, but they did. They decided a few months ago they're going to try to, to extradite him. He was uh, on the Isle of Man, sometimes in Canada, sometimes in the Isle of Man. He's is originally from Israel, also has uh, uh, Canadian citizenship. And he has not stepped onto U.S. soil since uh, 2011 when they, he was indicted on gambling, bank fraud, and money laundering charges. But he came to New York for the purpose of being arrested. So they started an extradition uh, attempt. It was not for sure. Scheinberg had actually gone to Switzerland, and for some reason during that visit, uh, he, where he was, when he was in Switzerland, that's when the U.S. started the extradition proceedings. And Scheinberg fought it and said, no, you're not extraditing me, and got his lawyers involved to try to contest it. But uh, after thinking about it, he said, you know what? Screw it. Let's face this already. So he planned to travel to the U.S. to go to be arrested and, and face the charges in federal court. Now, the fact that a few months have passed makes it likely that some kind of plea deal might be in the works. Now, keep in mind, he did plead not guilty in federal court. Uh, they, he traveled to the U.S., landed in New York. They arrested him, and they had a hearing that same day on Friday, January 17th, in federal court in uh, Manhattan, New York City. And he pled not guilty. They released him on bail. He's currently a free man in the U.S. right now. They, current, they released him on bail of exactly one million dollars. Sounds like a high bail, but the truth is, Scheinberg's a billionaire. That's not a lot of money for him. So the fact that the bail was a million dollars for someone who's a huge flight risk shows that there's more to this than appears on the surface. 
He clearly came to the U.S. to face the charges. The bail amount is meaningless to him. But they figured if he's coming to face the charges, of course he's not going to flee. He wouldn't have come in the first place if the plan was to flee justice. He'd been fleeing justice for nine years and decided, I'm done with it. A representative for Isai Scheinberg will not comment on what's going to happen. I think that a plea bargain has already been negotiated or is very close. Isai would not have come to the U.S. to face this if he was possibly going to get something like 20 years in prison. First of all, he's not a young man, okay? So that's that's a big factor, too. The, the older you are, the more it matters when you get years in prison because you're either not coming out or you're going to come out so old that you're going to have little quality of life or it's going to be kind of a toss-up whether you ever come out. So it's not like... Getting 20 years when you're 25 years old, you know, barring something unusual, you're going to walk out of prison. You're, you're going to waste 20 years of your life in prison, but at least you know you're probably going to walk out. If you're 60, uh, then it's looking questionable if you're going to walk out after 20 years. And if, if you're 75, you're probably not walking out. That becomes like a life sentence. So the Scheinberg, who I don't know his exact age, but he's not a young man, looks like he is going to be uh, 73 this year. So even a 10-year sentence is going to be pretty bad. So obviously, with all this money, he has no need to come to the U.S. The U.S. isn't even his home country. So why would he come here unless he was relatively certain that the penalty wasn't going to be something unreasonable? This is a very smart guy. He obviously did a risk-reward analysis of the whole thing. And I'm guessing it's similar to the situation with Scott Tom and even Brian Mikon, where a lot is negotiated before they even come to the U.S. to face the charges that have been filed against them. Now, Scott Tom came and filed and, and pled guilty. The, he did plead not guilty, which is a little bit weird, but that might change. That might start as a not guilty plea and then, and then evolve to guilty once they've hammered out the final details of the plea bargain. It may, it may be something like uh, they haven't completely come to terms, but they're fairly close, so they're like, just come on in and uh, uh, we'll make some deal with you, which is the last few details, so if you want, plead not guilty in the meantime, and then when you'll change it to guilty when we uh, we come to an agreement. But there's some reason he came here at the age of 73, 72 or 73, and it's not to face many years in prison at the end of his life. That would make zero sense. Absolutely zero sense. Now, if he were 100% certain he was going to be extradited anyway, then maybe. Then maybe he'd do it to give the appearance of cooperation. But not if uh, the extradition hasn't actually been ruled upon yet, which it had not been. So there's something going on here involving a plea bargain, most likely. But there's a complication here. There's something weird going on that I can't completely explain. And that isn't really being discussed anywhere, not even in this Forbes article. This was found not by me, but by listener Kev Math. Kevin Mathers, the guy that runs WSOP on Twitter, at WSOP on Twitter, not right now, but during the World Series of Poker. You know if you tweet at WSOP and you get uh, a nice, cordial, helpful, informational response where he tells you, where the person running that account gives you accurate and very useful information, that's KevMath. That's him running the account. He does that job every year. He does it very well. He was the perfect hire for that. He listens to this show. He once gave me a food voucher. 
as as uh, compensation for ignoring me in the hallway. That happened too. It really did. But uh, he found this. And that is USA versus Svetkov et al. Hmm. USA versus Svetkov et al. What does Daniel Svetkov have to do with this? Daniel Svetkov is a disgraced former payment processor for Poker Stars and Full Tilt. This is the guy, this is a guy in his 20s at the time, who stole $100 million from Poker Stars and Full Tilt while doing payment processing for them. So angry were Poker Stars and Full Tilt about this $100 million theft that they reported him secretly to the U.S. government, who was trying to go after payment processors at the time. A tip was passed to the government. Hey, would you like to bust a major payment processor? Daniel Svetkov is the biggest one of them all. Here's how to find him. Here's what he did. Here's all the evidence you need. And the government said, well, thank you very much. And they did bust Svetkov, who had blown most of that $100 million, by the way, on an incredibly high-maintenance lifestyle. He was spending money like it really was going out of style. Svetkov then said to them, well, I know who reported me. It was Poker Stars in Full Tilt. And I don't appreciate that one bit. But I'll tell you what, guys, if you will do something for me, if you will uh, make a deal with me, I will give you the bigger fish than me, and that would be Poker Stars in Full Tilt. So they reported me. Now I'm going to report them back. Let me tell you what I know about Poker Stars in Full Tilt, and that, in turn led to Black Friday that occurred in April 2011. That was pretty much what happened. I'm skipping some details, but that's pretty much what happened. They reported him for stealing $100 million, or not for stealing, but after he stole $100 million from them, they reported him for payment processing, and they busted him. Then he knew who reported him, and he then reported back on those who reported him. Oops. That was not a very well thought out plan. So why am I telling you this? Well, because nothing had been happening on this case in five and a half years. And then on January 17th, there was some action in this case. January 17th, 2020, says filed appear pro hoc vice. And then January 21st, 2020, order on motion to appear pro hoc vice. Well, 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 well. Now, what is pro hoc vice? That means for this occasion only. I'm not sure why that's there, but that's part of the orders to appear. Now, who are they ordering to appear? Is it Daniel Svetkov? I think no. I think it's actually Isai Scheinberg. Svetkov, they're already done with him. I don't see what his part in this would be or why he'd be appearing this soon, even if he were part of the court case that were to be had against uh, Isai Scheinberg, the criminal court case. So I think that since it's Svetkov et al., and if you scroll down, you'll see all the different defendants, including Isai Scheinberg, that this is related to his return to New York, and that's the action we're seeing here, that uh, there's an order for him to appear, and he did. What do I think will happen? Well, the only thing throwing me for a loop is this not guilty plea. That's the only thing throwing me for a loop. But again... He's not coming here unless he knows. Unless he knows 
that he's going to walk away from this relatively unscathed. Maybe a big fine, maybe a very short stint in, in federal prison. Uh, it's not going to be like years in prison. There's no chance that a 73-year-old is going to come to the U.S. after all this time voluntarily to face that. So we'll see. Uh, he doesn't, uh, in my opinion, deserve major prison time. I much would have rather seen someone like Scott Tom face time in prison. He wasn't charged for the UB cheating or the thefts, Scott Tom. He was only charged with uh, running the site itself. But that's why I would have wanted to see Scott Tom go to prison because he was a thief and a scammer. Isai Scheinberg was none of these things. Isai Scheinberg ran an online poker site that was against the law to run. Prior to 2006, late 2006, when they passed the UIGEA that explicitly made online poker for real money illegal, it was questionable whether PokerStars was legal or illegal, but after late 2006, it was clearly illegal for PokerStars to be running the site. And just because it took four and a half more years to bust PokerStars and to issue this indictment for Isai Scheinberg doesn't mean that he didn't know it was illegal. He knew it. They just were making too much money, and they did not want to stop. They were the market leader. There was too much money involved. It was worth the risk to them. And maybe when this is all over, he will feel he's made the right decision. If he gets a slap on the wrist here, has to pay some fine, and he made billions of dollars from this, I would say he made the right decision to break the law for those four and a half years. Now, for that reason, also, though, if he does get prison time, I'm not going to feel sorry for him. Because there's a reason Isai Scheinberg was running PokerStars and others were not that were U.S.-based. U.S.-based companies could not run PokerStars because they would be facing legal trouble. So it wasn't fair that the people acting illegally got a leg up here. A big leg up, basically. They they could do it and others couldn't. So you can't just shrug your shoulders and say, oh, well, that doesn't matter. He wasn't hurting anybody. He was a victimless crime. Well, yeah, but he made billions of dollars running a site that others couldn't run from the U.S. because it was illegal. So you can't just say, no big deal. I'm not calling for him to be imprisoned for this. Overall, he acted responsibly and did a lot of good for poker, and I'm not ignoring that. So I'm not going to be saying, yes, let's see Isai Scheinberg spend time in prison. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm saying if he did get a prison sentence, I'd say this. He made billions of dollars, and he knowingly broke the law to do it. A law I didn't agree with, but nevertheless a law that made others unable to compete with him that were U.S.-based. Or ones who were not U.S.-based but chose not to break the law. Even Party Poker exited the U.S. market after the UIGEA. They gave up a lot of money to do that. So you can't have it both ways. You can't have it where you just knowingly break the law, and then when you get caught, go, ah, well, the law wasn't good, though, so I I, I don't deserve to go to jail for it. And, and, uh, yeah, I made all this extra money because I continued breaking the law and others didn't, but, yeah, tough luck on them. Like, honestly, that's not fair. So there's two ways to look at this. If you look at it in that way, he, he deserves to go to jail. If you look at it in that the law was crap and that it's easy to disagree with and it was a victimless crime and that Poker Stars was run pretty well 
and that it did a lot of good things for poker overall, you'd say, well, why should someone like that be in jail? So I can see it both ways. But I don't think he's going to spend much time in prison or maybe even any time in prison. This may be strictly a fine and probation and some BS terms that don't really matter much, and then he will uh, be able to go along his many merry way and return to the U.S. whenever he likes. He doesn't live in the U.S., but I'm sure he would like to come to the U.S. sometimes and has not been able to. And then he also won't have to fear extradition anymore. It would be a big weight off his shoulders, and that's why he's doing this. He's doing this because there's been a weight on his shoulders. He's 73 years old. He's tired of it. He's probably tired of, you know, he travels to Switzerland. They try to they get him extradited. He's like, hey, you know what? I'm tired of this shit. Let's just, let's just deal with it. Let's, let's, let's find a way to just be done with this, even if I have to ship tens of millions of dollars to the U.S. government. Let's just have it be over. I just, I want this behind me. I don't want to spend time in jail, but I, I, other than that, if it's monetary, let's, let's get this done. And the government may say, you know what? This is an old matter from nine years ago. It's not a super important thing. It's not like Isai murdered people or something. He just ran an online poker site. So they may say, look, well, if, if this brings tens of millions more dollars into the government coffers, yeah, we'll dismiss it. Uh, a lot of these things are about money. The whole bust was about money in the first place. The, the Black Friday bust that occurred on April 15, 2011, was not about justice. It was not about enforcing the law. It was about money. And this is not just my opinion or my biased opinion because I was an online poker player and it negatively affected me. This was done by an office, the U.S. Attorney's Office of the Southern District of New York, an office which bragged that its main purpose was to go after well-heeled criminal organizations and seize their assets to then take those assets and put them into government coffers. Basically, it was a money-making office for the U.S. government that would make its money by seizing assets from rich criminal organizations. They did not cover this up. They admitted this. They admitted that's what this office does, the U.S. Attorney's Office of the Southern District of New York. Look it up. You, you can read about them. That's what that office did, and they did this over various presidential administrations with different people in charge because uh, the person in charge of that office was replaced every time the president changed. So they did this during the Bush administration. They did this during the Obama administration. It didn't matter who was president. That office always did that regardless of which people were in charge or which party was in charge. So that was the reason for the bust. And the what the miscalculation was by that office was that they thought that the three major online poker sites at the time, PokerStars, Full Tilt, and UB, were very large and rich and would be able to pay at least a billion dollars each to get out of it. And it turned out only one of the three could. It turned out the other two were broke and had stolen player money and wasted all that too. So Full Tilt had nothing to give, except its software, which they surrendered. UB had nothing to give. It was only poker stars that had money to give. So they got $750 million out of it, minus what they paid back to the players. So overall, they netted a few hundred million dollars. Was it worth the government's time? Oh, yeah, of course it was for a few hundred million dollars. But uh, did they get like the three million they thought they'd be getting? A uh, three billion they thought they'd be getting? No, not even close. They saw these three big sites and figured they all had to be rich. Online poker was pretty much a license to print money at the time, but not if you're stealing it all and misusing it or paying it out to your investors or whatever. So that, that was the end of that. But that was the reason for the bust. That was the reason for the Black Friday bust. If you look into it, you will see that that is the whole reason for that office to exist in the Southern District of New York. 
Sometimes when the government goes after a criminal organization that has assets they can seize, it's subjective. You can say, well, they're just doing this to seize money or seize assets or, well, no, they're doing this because they're trying to enforce the law or they're, they're doing this to try to, uh, you know, someone's trying to make a name for themselves who works in the office to bust a, a major criminal. There's a lot of different reasons that could be the motivation. But for, in this case, it was all financial. It was all financial in this case. So for that reason alone, I obviously don't feel bad if someone like Isai Scheinberg, who didn't do anything other than run a site which was illegal, uh, for him not to get prison time, which I am guessing at this point he probably will not get for the reasons I just told you. Okay, so now that we've discussed Isai Scheinberg, I want to talk about something that has bothered me for a long time for nine years now about poker stars and that is rarely discussed in fact it's never discussed in fact nobody even remembers it except for me and a few other people or maybe a few people with good memories remember eight years ago i made a big deal about this but i was very very upset in 2011 i had about two thousand dollars stolen from me by poker stars but it wasn't just me Everybody who had money on Poker Stars, everybody who had frequent player points on Poker Stars got stolen from. Some people a very little bit, and some people thousands like me. So how come we don't hear about this? How come there, with all the glowing talk about Poker Stars, at least old Poker Stars, so everyone talks about, oh, Amaya is so terrible. They're such a dishonest company. They're so, they're just not like the Scheinbergs were. And in many ways, that's true. But then how could Poker Stars, when it was run by the Scheinbergs, have been involved in something that took so much money from players that should have gone to players? How come we don't hear about this? And how come even when I brought it up at the time, most people disagreed? Most people said, no, that's not what happened. Most people said, you're crazy. Most people said, you're ungrateful. Most people said, this makes no sense. Even some very sharp people, some very sharp minds in the poker media and on poker forums told me that I was out of line to make such accusations that poker stars stole over $10 million worth of money that should have gone to the players when they cashed everyone out after Black Friday. Now, to give a little bit of background, Black Friday on April 15, 2011 occurred, and all the sites... uh, that were busted, shut down to where U.S. players couldn't play on them anymore. So even if they continued running, they were not allowing U.S. players on there. Poker Stars was one of them, of course. So after April 15, 2011, you could no longer play on Poker Stars if you were in the U.S. So what happened to your player balance and what happened to your frequent player points on the site? Well, Poker Stars did the right thing, and they agreed with the government very quickly that they're going to pay in full 100% of all player balances and do so quickly. Furthermore, that they were going to cash out all tournament tickets that people were holding, as well as frequent player points. They would convert them to what they were worth and cash those out as well. And that, on the surface, seemed incredibly reputable and generous. Here, Full Tilt was not paying people. UB was not paying people. 
PokerStars was not only paying people and doing it quickly and conveniently, but they were also going to cash out whatever tournament tickets you had that you couldn't use anymore and your frequent player points, which were reward points that you would earn as you would play. They're similar to casino reward points, like reward credits at Caesars. That's what FPPs were like. They're called frequent player points. So they, they were going to cash out everything for you and, and do it right away and ship it to your bank account. They just had to propose it to the U.S. government and have the U.S. government officially approve, and then it would be done. And the U.S. government, by the way, was not looking to see players get screwed, so the U.S. government wanted the players paid back. So that's what happened. Poker stars brought their plan to the U.S. government. U.S. government said, you're, play- you're paying everyone back? Great. Go ahead and do it. We approve. Rubber stamped it. Go ahead, poker stars. Send people their money. And it happened. Well, how dare I criticize such actions of poker stars that seem to be responsible in every way? They didn't pay you some percentage of your, your player balance. They paid you 100% of your player balance. They didn't take a long time to do it. They did it very, very quickly after this was approved by the government. They could have said, tournament tickets, sorry, but since they can't be used anymore, we're not cashing them out. Or, hey, we're going to just hold them for you. If it's ever legal again, you can use them. But for now, sorry. But nope, they cashed them out at full value. Frequent player points. They could have said, sorry, these are just promotional. We can't cash those out for you. But no, they directly converted them to cash, something you couldn't even do before, and cashed them out for you. How dare I say that there's anything wrong with any of this? Did Full Tilt do this? No, they didn't give you your money. Did UB do this? No, they didn't give you your money. So how dare I say this? Well, sometimes stealing just a little bit of money from a large number of people is all you need to accumulate 10 million or more dollars of other people's money. The best scams are not the ones where you rip someone off and they realize they've been ripped off. The best scams are the ones where the marks don't even realize that they're the victims. And in fact, where the marks think that the scammer was a great person and did them right. That's exactly what happened in May 2011 at PokerStars. So my problem is with the FPP thing. That's, that's where the issue lies. That's where the problem is. Frequent player points were earned every time you played a raked hand of online poker on PokerStars or when you enter a tournament. Any kind of rake you paid would then translate into a certain number of frequent player points you'd earn you would earn them at a different rate depending upon uh, your level, your tier level on there, which ranged from bronze all the way up to supernova elite. And your, your level would depend on you. You'd earn what are called tier credit, uh, 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 not tier cre- VPPs, which you couldn't cash out. Those were actually like tier credits at Caesars. It's something you can't cash out, but to determine what your status is. So as you'd earn more uh, VPPs, then you would earn higher status levels. And the higher your status level, the faster you'd earn FPPs. And also, the better deal you would get for cashing out FPPs. Things would open up to you that you could cash things out that were a better deal for the FPPs you already had. Okay, that's that's how the system worked ever since they introduced it around, I think, uh, 2004. 
So on April 15, 2011, not only did people have money in their accounts and tournament tickets in their accounts, but they also had FPPs. And PokerStars said, hey, well, these have value. We're going to cash those out for you. However, calculating what the FPPs were worth was not trivial or easy. Well, it could have been, but they it wasn't obvious, and it was something that they could play with to their advantage. See, a tournament ticket, let's say you had a tournament ticket to a Sunday $215 entry tournament. How much is that worth? Anybody? Anybody? Trader Risky, how much is a $215 tournament ticket on PokerStars worth? $215. What a genius. I'm glad I have you on the phone here. Yes, $215. So if they give you 200 for it, you feel you got screwed, right? You know, like if, if they give you 150 you feel you really got screwed. So when you know it's worth 215 if they pay you anything short of 215 you know you didn't get 100% value and you feel they stole from you. Your player balance, let's say you have $1,000 on PokerStars. If they send you 900 you feel PokerStars stole $100 from you. So those are very obvious value uh, balances you're going to have on the site to where they can't play games without looking really, really bad. But what about FPPs? Let's say you have uh, 200,000 FPPs. What's that worth? Anybody? What are 200,000 FPPs worth? Does anybody know? Right off the bat, you probably don't remember. Bucks. Well, right, you, well, right, right off the bat, you, don't, you probably don't remember. And yeah, because it's been many years, I don't blame you. But even at the time, it wasn't totally obvious unless you really looked at FPPs closely what they were worth. And this is where they got to play some games because they had to figure out what they were worth. But fortunately, so I thought, there was some reference for that. See, PokerStars had no rakeback. There was absolutely no such thing as a PokerStars rakeback deal. FPPs were the rakeback. That was their version of rakeback. So Full Tilt gave 27% rakeback. And you would get that in your account every month. You'd get it sent to your account every, at the end of every month, 20, 27% of whatever rake that was uh, generated when you played. But uh, PokerStars didn't have that. They had FPPs, which then you could cash out either for gifts or for what was called bonuses, which was like for cash, except the only difference between a bonus and direct cash is that you couldn't immediately go cash it out. You had to play X number of hands before you could actually cash out that bonus. But if you were an active player, their bonus was almost as good as cash because you're playing on there anyway, so who really cares? So if you looked at it carefully, you got to notice that your FPP balance, it didn't matter what level you were when you earned the FPPs. If you had an FPP, you had an FPP. So all you had to care about was your FPP balance and what current level you were to be able to uh, – what current VIP level you were to where uh, you could access certain deals for the FPPs. So it was found that the very best FPP deals were those bonuses, the highest level bonuses, where it was translating to 1.6 cents – Per FPP. So if you could accumulate 250,000 FPPs, then you could buy a $4,000 bonus, which, if you do the math, translates to 1.6 cents per FPP. Again, you can't immediately cash out the 4,000. I'm talking about before they closed to U.S. players. That's like, say, in 2010. You couldn't uh, immediately cash out the 4,000, but you, you just have to run some play on there, and then it would unlock it, and you could cash it out. So each FPP was worth 1.6 cents optimally. And 
in order to access that deal, you also had to be of at least supernova level. Supernova elite was the highest level. Supernova was the second highest level. If you were supernova or supernova elite, then you could get that deal of the uh, 250k getting four thousand uh, dollars bonus. So, what was an FPP worth? Well, it was hard to answer because it was worth one point six cents if you were supernova. But it was worth as little as one cent if you were bronze, the bottom level. Because all, all the better deals of buying FPPs for bonuses were worth less and less. And going down to bronze, the, the, only, the bronze, the only ones you could, end, you could access were uh, one cent each. Also, it didn't matter what you were when you earned the FPPs. It just mattered what you were at the moment. So even if you earned a lot of the FPPs when you were a lower level, if at the moment you're Supernova or Supernova Elite, then you could do that uh, 1.6 cent uh, optimal bonus thing. However, if you on the reverse, if you earned everything as a Supernova and then let it lapse, because after two months you'd lapse back to the bottom, if you let it lapse, then uh, th- then you, you'd be stuck at bronze and, and couldn't get that, even if you earned most of them when you were a Supernova. So it was all about what you were presently. But you knew that even if you lapsed back to bronze, you just had to play again actively, and you'd get back up to supernova very quickly. And then you could uh, – so if your goal is to cash out the FPPs, you just make sure to play a lot before you do it. You'd, you'd be stupid not to unless you're really desperate to get these bonuses. You, uh, other than that, you, you wait till you're supernova and, and cash them out then. So that, that's the way it worked. And there's one other thing is you couldn't just pick any random amount to convert to a bonus. It would have to be the exact amount that they were offering. So for the supernovas, as I said, for every 250K exactly of FPPs, it would be a $4,000 bonus. What if you had 253,000? Well, you could only do 250 and then either just hold the other 3,000 or, uh, or cash them out at a lower rate. So for example, 50, uh, $50 would be, uh, for uh, 4,500 frequent player points would get you $50, which is like 1.11 cents per FPP. So that's much worse. So uh, you'd have to buy them in blocks. You couldn't just say, okay, well, I have uh, 253,000. I want to convert them all at 1.6 cents. It didn't work that way. There's a reason I'm t- telling you all this stuff, even though that that whole program has been abandoned. Even today on PokerStars, you can't access this anymore. This is not the VIP program they have now, but there's a reason I'm telling you all this here. So here we are now on April 15, 2011, and people have FEPs in their account. What is the fair way to cash out the FEPs? Well, not that simple, is it? Because of these uh, variable rates and how you have to sell them in blocks. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's what is an FPP worth? Now, fortunately, we did have a frame of reference because Washington State at one point was cracking down very hard on online poker before Black Friday occurred. And Poker Stars exited Washington State, where if you were in Washington State, you were not able to play on Poker Stars anymore. So what did they do for everybody who couldn't play anymore? They cashed out their full balance, they cashed out the tournament tickets at full value, and they cashed out everyone's FPPs at, yes, 1.6 cents per FPP. Regardless of whether you were bronze or gold or supernova elite or platinum, it didn't matter. 1.6 1.6 for everybody. They just took your FPPs and directly converted them one by one to 1.6 cents each, and you got it. Very fair. Very good. 
They basically gave you the optimal value for the FPPs. And it made sense because you didn't have the opportunity to get back to Supernova to earn it, to, to, to redeem them optimally. So they said, okay, you can't, you can't earn the status anymore. So it's not fair to say, well, you're at bronze now. So we're cashing you out at bronze. How do we know you weren't going to earn your way back to Supernova? So we're just going to give you the most they were worth. Also, they were frequently posting on two plus two and other places, reps from poker stars, stating that FPPs were worth 1.6 cents each. And they were showing how their rewards program was superior to Full Tilt's 27% rakeback. Because people would say, you know, I think Full Tilt is better at 27% cash rakeback. And they said, no, no, no. Look, our FPPs are worth 1.6 cents. Here's the math. Here's why we're better. Which, which they were right about. But the, the, they actually posted this. Their reps posted this on, on 2 plus 2 that their FPPs were worth 1.6 cents each. Okay, so there should have been no question that these were worth 1.6 cents, both by what they did for the Washington people and what they've been posting on forums. So even though on the surface it seems complicated, it's really not that complicated. It was worth 1.6 cents each. Even if there are ways to spend it less optimally, even if you had to be supernova to get the 1.6 cents, because every, since everybody had the chance to get the supernova at any time and redeem them at that point, they were really worth 1.6 cents each. That's the truth. So what did they do for the Black Friday people, for everybody in the U.S. that could no longer play or redeem their FPPs? How did they calculate what people were going to get? Well, they had to come up with something and propose it to the government, have the government approve it, and then from that point, disperse them, disperse the cash at that point. But first they had to get, get the government to approve. So they went to the government and said, we've come up with an idea of how to redeem everyone's FPPs. Yes, it's a freeze frame idea. What they did is they froze time on April twenty or, or April fifteenth, two thousand eleven, and they cashed everyone out, everyone's FPPs out based upon exactly what their situation was on that date. Because that was that was the last day you could play on there. So they said, okay, we're going to pretend it's still April fifteenth, two thousand eleven. Freeze time, and whatever the player could have bought. In bonuses from our store, we can't. The gifts are all gone. We're not letting them buy gifts with it. We're taking all the gifts out. Whatever they could have bought using the bonuses, we will let them do, and then we will convert it directly into cash. They don't have to play it through because there's no way to play on here anymore. So we're just going to directly let them turn it to cash, and then they can cash it out and and take it. Well, they sent that to the government. The government said, "Oh, well, yeah." Makes sense to us. You're going to cash out the rewards points the exact way someone could have done on the day we busted you, right? Yeah. So they're going to get exactly what they would have gotten if they did this on uh, on, on April 15th. Yes, each player will get exactly what they would have gotten if they cashed out all their FPPs they could on April 15th, minus the gifts. But we're doing even better because they don't have to play it through. They just get to cash it out directly. Government says, sweet. Yep, that sounds very generous to us. Approved. Sounds fair until you think about it. First of all, you had to buy your FPPs at uh, 
increments of 2,500 or more. 2,500 FPPs was going to get $25 at a uh, rate of one cent per FPP. That was the bottom block you could buy. So what happened if you had, say, 2,499 FPPs in your account? Huh? How much would you get from PokerStars if you had 2,499 FPPs in your account? Zero point zero. Whoa! That, uh, yes, but isn't that bad? So anyone with less than 2,500 FPPs in their account couldn't get anything. Big zero. Big goose egg. It's, it's worth almost 25 bucks. In fact, it's worth more than 25 bucks because it really should be worth 1.6 cents. But even taking their one cent valuation, it's worth $24.99. PokerStars just kept all of that. When asked for justification for why they could do such a thing, they said, well, we're not actually keeping it. If you ever come back and play PokerStars, like if you move out of the U.S. or if somehow we're legalized in the U.S. again, and by the way, it's not the same thing to be legalized state by state. I mean, like if they're federally legalized again in the U.S., which is not going to happen. Then we're we're holding them here for you. We're not throwing them away. You just can't access them. But if you want to move somewhere else to a different country, yeah, you can you can get them at that point. Otherwise, no, you can't get them. Can you imagine just on that alone, people who had twenty four ninety nine or fewer FPPs with all those players they had on the site, the millions of players they had on the site? Can you imagine how much money from that alone they kept? I, Richard Pryor would have been proud. Total Superman three trick. Total Superman 3. It was like Superman 3 on steroids. The, the Richard Pryor, uh, the character he was playing on Superman 3 was only keeping a few cents. I think like fractions of cents from, from each employee. Here, they were keeping uh, up to twenty four ninety nine. Wow, per player. But it's not just those players who didn't have many FPPs. If you have any remainder from these blocks you're buying, which just about everyone will, unless you had a perfect multiple of 2,500 uh, FPPs on the site, then you were going to have some kind of remainder. So just about everybody finished with some kind of remainder of FPPs, which they could not cash out. And to this day, you never got the value for those. Gone. PokerStars kept it. Can you imagine? Multiply that by all their players, how much they kept. Think about it. There's another problem that you had to convert your FPPs into money via blocks. So the optimal block is the 250K block. But if you didn't have a direct multiple of 250K, if you didn't have exactly 250K or exactly 500K or exactly 750K, well, then you had to buy smaller blocks at worse of a deal. So let me give you a comparison. If you, let's say you were currently Supernova and you had 499,999 FPPs. Well, you'd have to buy... One block of 250K and get 4,000. One block of 100K and get 1,500, which is less uh, per FPP. Another block of FPP uh, of 100K to get 1,500. A block of uh, 25K to get 300, which is only worth 1.2 cents. Then uh, I think five blocks of $50 at 1.11 cents each to get, uh, for, for 4,500 FPPs. And then your last 24.99 gets wasted. Zero dollars. So total, you get seventy-five fifty. However, if you just had one more FPP to have five hundred thousand exactly, you get eight thousand. So four hundred fifty dollars gets lost through this block scheme, just from the difference of one frequent player point. This is exactly how it was done. So from four hundred ninety-nine thousand nine hundred ninety-nine to five hundred thousand, a four hundred fifty dollar difference. 
Not kidding. That's exactly how it was. So why was that? Well, because they forced you to buy it in blocks. Why? Because that was the way you had to buy it when you were a player there. But the difference was when you were a player there, you didn't worry about that because you just wouldn't buy another block until you got to 250 again. But now you couldn't get to 250 again. It was done. You couldn't earn anymore. So the fair way to have done it would have been the simplest way. Take whatever number of FPPs you have, multiply it by 1.6 cents, and there you are. That's what you get. That's what they did for the Washington State people. For everybody who got screwed on Black Friday, they did it this way. And that was on purpose. That was on purpose so they could keep probably over $20 million. I say $10 million as being conservative. Probably over $20 million. And this was not an accident. This, this wasn't just a something that happened to break in their favor, but they thought they were doing fairly. This was not an accident. And this pissed me off. I, I personally got screwed. I especially got screwed because, in addition, something I haven't mentioned yet is you had to be Supernova to access these best deals. So whatever VIP level you were at the time is what you were able to cash out as. So I just ha- I happened to have not played on PokerStars that much for the past uh, month and a half. So guess what? I was a lower tier. I wasn't Supernova, even though I earned almost all my points being Supernova. So I had to do them all at like the one cent level. So you can't even access these better deals above one cent if you're, if you're the bottom tier. You can only access the, the, the deal associated with what tier you currently are. So overall, I, I think I lost uh, like $2,000 somewhere in that neighborhood. I don't remember the exact amount. It was around 2000 bucks I lost. Maybe a little more, maybe a little less. It's been many years, I forget. But I was pissed. Because I earned these FPPs, believing I was earning them at 1.6 cents each. They encouraged people to hoard them. They told you to save them. They told you they'd always be there for you. They were even encouraging you to save them to buy a car. In fact, uh, Dario Minieri actually bought a car with his FPPs. So they encourage you to hoard them. And then when the shit hits the fan, they screw you for hoarding them. And they didn't have to. Now, they tried to claim they had to. They tried to claim, well, the government said this is the way we have to do it. No, they told the government this is how we want to do it. And the government's like, oh, okay, okay, yeah, this sounds good to us, guys. Go do it. So they did. So, yeah, the government mandated that they keep to the deal that they proposed. PokerStars proposes it. Government says, okay. PokerStars like, don't blame us, blame the government. They're telling us how to do it. No, it was the reverse. You guys told the government the way you wanted to do it, and the government stupidly said yes. So I brought this up. I brought this up. I, I, I made very, very detailed posts about this on Poker Fraud Alert, on 2 Plus 2. I explained it painstakingly. I gave examples. I, I put it in a way everybody could understand. And I got clobbered. Everybody attacked me. A few people. A few people took my side. But most people told me, you're being a jerk. You're being ungrateful. Poker Stars is the only one to pay us. Poker Stars didn't have to cash the FPPs out at all, which is not true. Those were considered something of value, and the government would have balked if they just screwed everybody. Plus, it would have looked bad for their future business in Europe. So they didn't want to do that. Uh, they also always advertise FPP as being the same as rakeback, so they can't just say it has no value. This was something you were supposed to have earned. This has even been established uh, in the casino industry that any comps you earn are yours and that the casinos can't confiscate them. That's Nevada state law, by the way. I know this doesn't have to do with Nevada, but I'm just telling you it's been established elsewhere with much more ga- gaming history than PokerStars has. 
So they, I was, and this is not PokerStars reps telling me this. This, these are players who also got screwed, who are going on and on about how generous PokerStars was, because they were the only ones who have paid us, and they didn't have to give us the FPPs at all. They didn't have to give us the tournament tickets at all. And why am I being such an ingrate? Others saying the FPPs are just promotional. I explained how they weren't. Others just weren't understanding the, the, the math I was bringing out here. I even had some really sharp people arguing with me on this one. Now, am I saying that PokerStars was anywhere near as bad as UB or Full Tilt? No. They were not. They, they, they were much, much better. But did they rip us off out of many millions of dollars collectively? Yes. Did they do it intentionally? Very likely. And that's bad. That is bad. And I personally was ripped off of like $2,000 out of the whole thing. And the simplest way to have done this, they chose not to do because they could save money by this convoluted way of just saying, let's just, let's just freeze time on April 15, 2011 and just make everybody do it as if they were cashing out all their bonus on that day. And for the reasons I stated, that would make no sense. Like nobody would actually have done that. The real value of each point was 1.6 cents. This had been established already by them in various ways, and they went back on that to save many millions of dollars and screw us. But I couldn't get this through most people's thick heads, including people who are usually smart and sharp about these things. And I was very frustrated by it. It it just really frustrates me when people choose not to see what they don't want to see. Everybody was so happy with poker stars. Oh, they were the only good company. They were the only ones with our money. They they paid us out quickly. They even cashed out our FPPs. Look look what the other companies did. Look how terrible they were. Why are you attacking the only good company out there? Because they did something dishonest. And some people were just blind to it. Most people were blind to it. So to this day, nobody remembers it. But that happened. I did have some people saying, look, I can't agree with all your stuff about the rate they're cashing out the FPPs. Some people didn't understand it. Some people understood but didn't agree. They agreed like with the math I put out there, but they didn't, they didn't agree it was unfair. But I did have some of those same people saying, look, I will agree with you on one thing. Them just keeping the remainder of 2499 or, or fewer FPPs was awful, and there's no justification for that. And that's the absolute worst thing they did, and I agree. That, that was the worst part of the whole thing, that they're just Superman 3 the remainder of anything under 2500 for each account they just keep. That by itself was the way they made the most. Old news and everything, but I, I, I just want to say this because you can't have a perfect view of what PokerStars was prior to Amaya. This was a, a pretty bad thing. The, probably the amount of money that was stolen here was more money than was stolen by the uh, entire absolute poker scandal. Not the UB scandal. The UB scandal was more. But they probably, I mean, they definitely netted here more than the absolute poker, uh, at least the, the cheating scandal, the, the whole card scandal, not the second scandal where they stole all the money. Now, this is not as obnoxious or offensive, but as far as monetary terms, we're, we're talking about with, I mean, it's probably more than $20 million that should have gone to the players that didn't. And whatever way you shake that out, that's bad. And you can't say, oh, it's promotional. No, it's not promotional. If you've earned it, if this is something you've earned along with your play, if there's a form of rakeback, then they owe it to you. And I said, look, Full Tilt had direct rakeback where they just put money in your account. 
So are you saying that Full Tilt, you know, now that Full Tilt's gone down, they should have the right to go back into your account and remove all the rate back you ever paid and not pay you? Well, no, of course not. Well, how is it different than the FPPs? Well, because they've converted it already. Well, who cares? Either the rewards you earn are yours or they're not. There's no middle ground. It doesn't matter if you converted to cash yet. You either the rewards are either something of value, which must be paid to you, or they are not. And that's what the Nevada state legislature has already gone over this and says, yes, rewards are yours. So people just don't understand. People just do not understand a lot of times. Or they force themselves not to. It was a bunch of sheep. It really was well, a bunch Or they of were just so thrilled to get anything at that point. Right. They shouldn't be arguing. Right, right. They, they, they were, they were so. Th- that's that's what a lot of them were. They were very happy to get anything, and they felt like they were just being ungrateful to say otherwise. But, but it's, I, I don't think it's a matter of ungrateful. Like the, this was their responsibility. Just because two companies shirked that responsibility doesn't mean PokerStars deserves a medal, or, or or deserves leeway to screw us. It, just because they didn't completely screw us. Like that's a. I, I don't. I just. I hold all companies to the standard of they need to do what they claim that they're going to do. Nothing more, nothing less. So they, if they're holding our money, then we should be able to get our money. And they don't deserve an award for giving us our money. And if they give us something short of what they owe us, then that's a problem. Even if we're getting a much bigger percentage from them than the other companies, which was a big zero. So it's, it's okay. You can at the same time say PokerStars was good and responsible and they held our money properly you can say that, and you can also say they screwed us with the FPPs. They definitely screwed us with the FPPs. There's no question. Now, before I end this topic, you're probably bored of this by now, but if, before I end this topic, I'm bringing this up because of Isai Scheinberg. Am I saying that Isai Scheinberg is a thief who stole tens of millions of dollars from people via this FPP Superman 3 scam? I actually think probably not. I think Isai wasn't aware. He was a hands-on manager. He was a hands-on CEO. But at the same time, this was minutia in a way. I believe Esai was very much a part of the decision to pay people their FPPs. That was a, a big expenditure for the company. So obviously he knew about that and, and was probably the one who decided it. But I have a feeling he commanded his underlings to come up with a fair scheme and said, hey, I want to pay out everybody their FPPs, so come up with a way to do this. I know it's not going to be easy, but just come up with what you think is fair. And bring it to me, and I'll tell you if I sign off on it. So he probably sent his underlings to do it. They came up with this uh, clever little plan. Came to Esai and said, "Hey, here, here it is." Esai probably said, "Okay, looks good to me." Send it to the government. They did. Government approved it. They did it. I have a feeling Esai never even knew. Maybe he did. I'm not going to say that. No chance he did. But uh, but this was definitely delegated to people under him, and he may not have understood how people were getting screwed. Why? Because. From what I've heard of the guy, he wasn't looking to cheat people. This was someone who had usually had, had conducted his business, business honestly. And I was told stories, which I can't reveal out here, that, but I, I've told, been told stories over time where Esai easily could have done the wrong thing and chose not to, just because he had the moral character not to screw people that he did business with. Even if he could have gotten away with it, he would choose not to. So... What I've heard about him as a human being and a businessman, it's kind of hard for me to believe that he would knowingly engage in this kind of scheme. I think it was his underlings who thought they were clever coming up with this and brought it to him. And he probably said, oh, yeah, it looks good to me. Because on the surface, even an intelligent person can look at this and go, yeah, 
just cash it all out as if it was April 15th. It makes sense to me. You have to really think about it closely to realize why this is a big screw job. So I think that's what happened. That's my guess. I think if Esai, if someone sat down with him, if, if, if I got to spend an hour with Esai and show him this whole thing, I have a feeling he would, he would have said, no, we're going to do it differently. So I, I think it was some assholes under him that did this and he just approved it. Now, of course, being the CEO that he's still ultimately responsible. So I can't just excuse, well, it's the people under him. I can't worry about that. I, he's the one who approved it. So that, that is a fault of his. And I, I, that is one thing that's taken away my warm feelings towards the guy. But still, overall, I have mostly warm feelings from, uh, given all his contributions to poker. But you need to just be aware of both things. All right. That's the end of the Poker Stars topics for now. They've got a little bit of a segment about Poker Stars Pennsylvania, which is a very different thing in the present, which we're going to do towards the end of the show. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. We're going to move on to our next topic of the night in the chat room. I Am Greek asked a good question before we move on. What would be the motivation of the underlings to do that? Well, I think this. I think this is what happened. I I think that uh, they may not have wanted to pay out the FPPs in the first place. This may have actually been something where Isai said, no, we need to do it. And they're like, well, no, it's just promotional. Why why should we even have to do that? And Isai's like, no, 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 no. I want you guys to do it. So they may have been kind of against the whole thing in the first place. So they may have come up with a very minimum way to do it to where it looks good, but people are really still getting screwed. So if they kind of felt like this is something the players didn't really deserve much in the first place. Or maybe you even had delusional underlings who thought this was fair. I still think that they were aware of what they were doing, especially especially because of the thing with the remainder giving nothing. I mean, this was clever. I'll give you that. It was clever to say, hey, well, we'll just cash you out the exact same way you could have cashed out the day we stopped operating for U.S. players, and that's fair, right? Like, without thinking about it, that seems extremely fair. So... It's possible they didn't really realize how much they were screwing people until they already submitted it to the government. It was too late, but I, I think they knew. Did Esai know? I don't know. He might have. They might have brought it to Esai and said, look, well, there's two ways we could do it. We could do it the 1.6 way like we did for Washington, but it's going to cost us a ton of money. Or we could do it this way, which is still fair, because this is what people could have done on April 15th, and it'll save us this much money. And Esai said, yeah, well, okay, as long as we're fair about it. Okay, yeah, let's do it, do it this way. Could have been like that. I just don't think Esai is like, yes, ha, 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 we're going to... St- Steal twenty million dollars from the PokerStars user base on the way out. <laughs> I just I don't see him doing that, given everything else I've heard about him. It's just my guess. I'll never know. Unfortunately, the the few people who might be able to tell me this would never tell me the truth because they love Esai so much that even if this was true that he was that he knew they were ripping people off, uh, they wouldn't admit this because like everybody who worked for him loved him, so like no one's going to bash him when talking to me. And I'm not like. I'm just not going to ever get that. In fact, like every PokerStars employee I've talked to about this matter has, has like their heads in the sand. They just won't even listen to what I have to say about this. I gave up on this. This this shows the only place I can still discuss it because nobody else takes me seriously about this. I hope I hope you understand. If you if you disagree, text me seven seven five three seven two eight three five five. If you disagree, explain why you disagree. I won't get mad. I just like to hear why you disagree if you think I'm wrong. Okay, so uh, moving on here to our next. Topic of the evening. Self-styled sports betting king Rob Goradetsky 
who claimed to be one of the most successful high-stakes sports bettors in Vegas, one of the best sports handicappers alive, despite the fact that he doesn't know much about the games he bets, and he just bet based upon feel that somehow he just wins untold sums of money. Well, it turns out that wasn't true, and it turns out that he was actually embezzling money to fund his sports betting habit. Now, we suspected something like this. We we knew he wasn't what he claimed to be. We covered him on the show before. And uh, in our segment, at no point did we say there was even a tiny chance that Rob Gorodetsky was what he claimed to be. Uh, so we knew something was going to come out eventually that this guy was a phony. We just weren't sure if he was stealing the money in some way or if he just had inherited a lot from his family or just had a trust fund. In some way, the guy was posing as a top sports better when he clearly was not. Rob Gorodetsky, at the time, in late 2017, was 25 years old. He's now 27. He was... He looked like a douchebag. You, you look at the guy, the guy looked like a douchebag. He wore uh, flashy clothes. He actually had a hat that he wore that said Gambler, G-A-M-B-L-R, Gambler, without the E, and a period at the end for some reason. Why is it Gambler period? Does it become an abbreviated word because you're missing the E? Just because the word is misspelled doesn't mean it's abbreviated. <laughs> But he was gambler, period. He wears a hat. And there's actually a picture of him where he had a self-portrait of himself painted wearing that exact gambler hat and an expensive Louis Vuitton hoodie. And he's holding the self-portrait of himself with the gambler and the, the hoodie on. <laughs> and, and he posed for this picture for a USA Today article, which brought everyone's attention to him. Before this, he wasn't well-known to the public. He was known to certain people. I didn't know who he was. Most people didn't know who he was. But he brought attention to himself in a very, very entertaining USA Today article in late December 2017. If you Google Rob Gorodetsky USA Today, that's G-O-R-O-D-E-T-S-K-Y, Rob Gorodetsky, you can read the USA Today article from late 2017 where he claimed to be this tremendously successful sports better, and he claimed that he would bet huge, crush the casinos. He admitted he lived a super ex- extravagant lifestyle, and he said, one of the few things he said that was true, was that he had befriended a number of high-profile athletes and celebrities, which, amazingly, he had. That he actually got some dumb celebrities and athletes to buy into this obvious ruse of his. By the way, the Louis Vuitton hoodie that he was wearing, that costs only $6,000. That's all. <laughs> so there are a lot of people who have been proposed, who have been posing as professional gamblers for years. There's been many losing poker players, losing gamblers, losing sports bettors who have money from other sources, often money they didn't earn, like from trust funds, inheritances, whatever, sometimes from scams, where they like having the title of professional gambler. Why? Because being a professional gambler who makes a ton of money is cool because it shows you can beat either the casino 
or in the case of poker, the other players. This puts you a cut above almost everybody else. Because you don't beat the casino normally. The casino has the odds to beat you, and eventually they will. And sports betting, very, very hard to beat long-term, especially for a lot of money. And poker. Well, you you know poker. It's uh, to win a lot of money at the highest stakes. You're playing a lot of really tough players. So if you can win large sums of money doing any of these things and call yourself a professional gambler, people will admire you and look up to you, especially ones who try this themselves and always seem to end up on the losing end when it's all said and done. So Rob Gordetsky was one of many who seemed to claim to be professional gamblers, yet it didn't add up how they were actually making their money. As I said, most of these guys end up either being scammers or had inherited the money in some way. But the story he told in the USA Today wasn't just about that. He also talked about how he had various high-profile athletes and celebrities who were friends of his and that had become interested in his sports betting prowess and were dumb enough to believe that he was really uh, some sports betting prodigy. They wanted in on his action. They're like, well, if this, if this kid can make all this money and buy these $6,000 hoodies and, and, and bet so much in all these different games, uh, obviously the guy knows what he's doing. So, hey, count me in on this. One of them that he became close friends with was Odell Beckham Jr. And Odell Beckham Jr. got into a panic when this article was written because the NFL – forbids players from betting on any professional sport, not just football. And Odell Beckham Jr. was clearly betting through uh, Rob Gordetsky. Like he would call up Rob and say, hey, you know, place this much money on uh, you know, for me on this. And then if it uh, won or lost, Rob would either send the money to Odell Beckham or Odell Beckham would uh, send him the money, depending on what happened. But he actually was having Gordeski plays bets from him when he wasn't in Vegas <laughs> and was also getting sports betting advice from Gordeski when he was in Vegas, which still was prohibited. Either way, it was prohibited because he was not supposed to be gambling on any professional sports according to his, his contract. Well, he just denied it after this, you know, when this article came out, he just completely denied knowing Gordeski, even though evidence was produced that they really did know each other and were friends. Lakers, then rookie, and still on the team, Kyle Kuzma, also hung out with Rob Gordetsky and also denied knowing him. Russell Westbrook, who likes playing high-stakes poker. In fact, I spoke to someone in the 2018 World Series who had played with Russ before and said he was a, quote, nice guy. But Russell Westbrook also got to know Gordetsky and also was uh, placing sports bets, apparently, uh, based on Gordeski's picks. He also was uh, friends with Damon Jones, who was then the shooting coach for the Cleveland Cavaliers, and was giving baseball picks. He was texting baseball picks to Damon Jones. The musician Drake, he was also impressed by Rob Gordetsky. And once wired $100,000 to Gordetsky for Gordetsky to gamble for him. Now, how has Gordetsky done in poker? Well, he I don't know about cash games, but uh, in tournaments, he has very few tournament results. Only six lifetime caches, 
The last one was in 2015 at the Poker Stars PCA, the 25K high roller event. He got 10th for 98K for a profit of 73K. Anyway, the interesting thing was that uh, he claimed that he had, he was winning 60 to 65% of his spread sports betting picks. <laughs> no. Nobody does that. Nobody can manage 60 to 65% long term. Too hard. But just in case you think maybe this guy's just a sports betting genius, he admitted to not knowing very much about the games he'd bet on. He couldn't tell you the names of any players on teams that he would bet on or why he was placing his bets. Just, it's my gut feeling. I just feel this is going to win. He wasn't even doing it based upon betting patterns. Like there, there is a strategy where you can watch the betting patterns of others and then kind of uh, follow the, the way the line moves and the way the betting patterns are and, and figure out the way the casino believes the game's going to fall or the way the sharp bettors believe the game's going to fall and, and follow them. He wasn't even doing that. He just, he just, no, no, I just just feel like this is going to win. He just would, just out of the air, just pick a team and bet on it. That's what he was doing. Claimed he was doing it for four years, making a lot of bets for high stakes, just doing it by feel, and somehow was winning uh, 60 to 65%, which was accounting for all the money he had. USA Today asked him at the time, well, can you prove it? Can you prove me to make money? He says, yeah, yeah, hang on a second. And he whipped out one statement from William Hill showing that he was up like 200K that one particular year. <laughs> the statement that he showed was from William Hill. He made uh, 245,000 was the exact number. And that was out of 26 million in bets that he placed. But they said, well, okay, is, is that the only place you bet? Uh, no, no, but that's the only statement I have for you right now. So it looks like he betted a lot of different places. The only one where he happened to luck into a profit was, was William Hill and all the other books he probably got killed. But, but the question was, where was this money coming from? It was clear the guy making sports bets by feel over a four-year period for high stakes was not killing the books. It's just not possible to do that. You can't just pull picks out of your ass with no information about the games and be a tremendous winning sports better for more than a, a very, very short time. So what was really going on with this guy? How was he really getting his money at the age of 25? Theories were thrown about. It was believed at the time he was just like a trust fund kid and just a douchebag who was attention hungry. And that's probably why he had that article done for about him. And that's all. The thought of him being a scammer was possible, but people thought it was more likely he just had money from somewhere else. Well, Whoever guessed scammer was the winner because here's the new information. Everything I just told you was over two years old, but now I'm going to tell you the thing that was just learned. Rob Gordetsky stole almost $10 million from a single investor that he conned into believing that that he had a, a profitable scheme going on and to invest money with him. So he has now been busted for this almost $10 million embezzlement scheme. I'm sure you're shocked. So it turns out there is one person, one person he bamboozled. That's all it takes. One rich guy 
I assume it was a guy. Maybe it's a woman, but I, I, if I just guess. I'm guessing it was a guy. Okay. He uh, he got this investor who is identified only as victim A, but it may eventually come out who it is. But it's only right now identified as uh, victim A in uh, federal charges that were brought against him in Chicago for stealing almost uh, ten million dollars from this investor. He was charged with executing wire fraud and filing a false tax return. And it does appear that he is going to plead guilty and waive indictment, which probably makes sense because it'll be hard for him to plead not guilty given everything uh, that's uh, come out. Uh, the surprising thing is that he went and did this USA Today article. I really felt at the time, if you're going to go do this USA Today article and bring so much attention to yourself, it's it's because you're, you're not doing anything criminal. You're probably just wasting your own money, and you just want – instead of just quietly losing, uh, you want people to believe you're, you're living large and, and, and beating the books. So that's – it was just like self-promotion, I thought. I, I thought – could he really be this stupid – to be stealing the money and then making drawing so much attention to himself? Uh, the answer was yes. The answer was yes, you, you could be, and he was. So uh, what, what happened was that he convinced this uh, victim that he was going to, that, that he had uh, an investment scheme that basically couldn't fail. So starting in February 2014, he got uh, $953,000 from this, quote, victim A for the purpose of investing in the stock market. So he wasn't up to talking about gambling yet. Uh, this was really just a steal for gambling, but but he convinced this, quote, victim A that he's really just going to be uh, investing the 953000 in the stock market, and they'd be making all kinds of money. He convinced this victim that he had this can't-lose stock market strategy. In reality... He uh, invested very little of it in the stock market. He, he invested about 200k in the stock market. The rest of it, over 700k, he just appropriated for his own use to gamble. I'm not sure what his end game was. I, I think he was probably delusional enough to think he was just going to win gambling and then claim it was in the stock market. And yeah, I don't think he was believing it's going to end up this way. He's going to chunk off all the money and then get arrested. I, I think he believed that he was just somehow going to make it work. But he did actually steal 700000 of it to gamble on his own, probably assuming that he'll pay the guy back with all the winnings he makes gambling. But the guy at the time did not agree to have that use for gambling. Also, Gorodesky was not just using this to gamble. He lived this incredibly uh, high-profile and high-dollar lifestyle, like buying these $6,000 hoodies. <laughs> In uh, July 2014... Five months later, the victim asked, hey, well, how's it going? How, how are my investments doing? And, and Gorodetsky said, well, we're doing well. The, the $953,000 you gave me has grown to $2 million. So we've made over a million because I've been making so many successful stock market trades. So exactly like I told you, I'm making a lot of money in the stock market. But I have a better opportunity for you. I'm actually also a sports better. 
and I have a really, really good system, and I can make all kinds of money at sports betting, how would you like to switch our strategy over to sports betting? And the investor said, yeah, sure. Okay, if you think that's the best way to do it. So how did it go from this 953000 to $10 million if Gordeski was losing? If this is a winning system and it's actually not winning, why was this guy throwing more money? Well, what Gordeski was doing, and by, by the way, just saying you have a sports betting system and then getting someone to invest in it and you losing is not a crime. Because as long as they know they're investing in sports betting. Now, now he did commit a crime first by by not investing the 953K in sports betting, actually just uh, spending it himself or, or, or gambling it himself. So that's that right there is already embezzlement. But uh, You mean in stocks, right, Truff? Wasn't that the first – that amount well, was supposed to be for stocks? Or right. Yeah, the 953 was supposed to be for stocks, and then uh, 737 of it he took for himself and, and, and also used for gambling. But then after that, uh, five months later, he claimed, oh, the, the 953 is now $2 million, which in reality wasn't. It was gone. He needed more money. So he, he went to the guy and said, oh, we made another million, so uh, how would you like to start sports betting now? Yes. Well, the, the first problem is he lied to the guy about what he had really lost and pretended he made money and solicited investments based upon that. And, and, and second of all, uh, while it's not illegal to ask for money for sports betting and just having a bad system or talking up your system that actually sucks – uh, what is illegal is uh, the next thing that happened was that as the victim gave more money, he was making false statements showing that the victim was actually making money. Um, I, I have to imagine that uh, some of this was probably uh, like how do you how does he ask for more money when they're making money? I'm guessing it was probably some BS like oh we're we're going to keep making our wagers bigger and bigger. That's why we need more money. Look, look how well we're doing already. Let's keep going. Let, let's kick up the wagers even higher. So I, I can't pay you anything out yet because we're, we're still using this as a bankroll, but, but boy, are we doing well. What he was actually doing was placing losing sports bets overall and also spending a lot of money on luxury items and his high-stakes lifestyle. So it was both of those things. He was just all the money the guy was giving him. He was just shooting off in the casino and spending on himself and pretending the guy was making money. Kept getting more investment because the guy believed that he was on the way to getting richer. In that time period, Gordetsky spent two point two million dollars on items that were unrelated to sports bets. So he actually spent two point two million on travel. Living expenses, entertainment expenses, luxury cars, and jewelry. <laughs> so it wasn't just he'd get the money away in the in the casino with sports bets. He was spending over two million bucks on luxury items. He also filed a false tax return, as I mentioned earlier, claiming that his income was only ten thousand five hundred twenty in two thousand sixteen. In reality, his income was uh, much higher because he was scamming it from this guy. This is. The reason they're doing this is just to find more ways to charge him, because technically he was committing tax evasion. Even if the see the, the way the IRS sees it is if you make money in any way, even through scams, you owe them taxes. You you owe them. It doesn't matter if you're a drug dealer or a scammer. If you have made money in that calendar, you 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 owe the taxes on that income. So if you make money illegally and don't file taxes, uh, claiming you made that money. 
and underpay your taxes, then you could be considered uh, a tax evader and charged with that. So they're hitting with that as well. One of the most famous people charged with tax evasion when he was guilty of much greater things was, of course, Al Capone. Gordetsky is facing charges that could carry up to 30 years in prison. He won't get that, but that's what the maximum is. Gordetsky would not comment, nor would his parents, who were contacted to ask about this. He claimed in the USA Today article that the reason he was winning so much is that he would bet without fear and was unafraid to lose. He said, you're still going to see me here tomorrow. You're going to see me here the next day. We're going to be in the game. (laughs) How does that explain anything? This victim, I, I don't like to victim shame. I really don't. I don't like to say this person deserves it for being stupid or gullible. Because some people are better at sniffing out scams than others. But really, how gullible do you have to be? I don't know how much money this victim A has, but uh, or had, but at least he had, he had at least ten million. How do you make that much money, and then let some chump like this scam it from you? Now I don't know when victim A became aware that he was being ripped off. Maybe he wanted to see proof of the funds. Maybe uh, he just became very suspicious. Maybe the USA Today article tipped him off. I wish I knew what actually made victim A realize that this was all BS. But nevertheless, <laughs> this how you could let someone do this with your money and not see proof that the money really exists for that sum is crazy. It's it's not like you're giving the guy uh, $1,000 to bet for you when you have a lot of money and you're just trusting him whether you're the $1,000 won or lost. This this is someone giving $10 million over time and, and not checking into it. Now, the charges claim that the fraud was from 2014 to 2017. That gives us a bit of a clue because... The article in USA Today was at the end of December 2017, which means it sounds like maybe the article was the wake-up call. Maybe victim A even showed the article to friends who were like, what the hell? What are you doing? I was just about to say that. He's probably like, oh, that's my financial planner. They're like, that clown? Are you kidding? <laughs> They're like, wait a minute. This, this is the genius mind who's been placing sports bets for you? Are you sure this money exists? Well, he said the money exists. Well, are you sure? Well, no, but I trust him. I mean, I, I keep investing more because we're making so much. You better this check on that. My financial statement, it's like written on like a Hilton like, yes. pad that's next to your bed, like writing. <laughs> we have uh, $55 million now. Okay. I believe you. So it probably, I wonder if it had to do with the article. It's also possible that he went and did the article because this guy just cut him off. Maybe this guy was suspicious towards the end of 2017. And said, no, no more, we're done. Either either prove the money's still there or I'm not giving you any more. And then Gordeski's like, fuck, I'm, I'm broke. What do I do? Oh, how about an article profiling what a great gambler I am? I'll get more investors. Yes, that could have been that too. I also wonder if the article is what brought more uh, attention to him and why the feds wanted to investigate him. I'd love to know the information regarding that, but this article that I've read about him in the Chicago Tribune does not give this information. It is disturbing, though, that someone can get ripped off of this amount of money by a guy like this. 
That, that's the sad thing. This isn't even somebody who presents as someone who's believable. Like, let's say there was a sports better who was known to be a good sports better or someone who talked a really good game about the analysis he does and 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 really makes you believe when you're talking to him that he's a sharp sports better and he he talks you into giving him money and you you stupidly don't verify that he really has the funds he does and he keeps losing your money and he claims it's there and it's not that would still be pretty bad but at least you could say well at least the type of person who fooled you was a believable person with a story he's telling this clown like the second you see the article and see the guy's picture you know he's a fraud just from looking at him, the second you see this guy's picture in the gambler hat and the Louis Vuitton hoodie and the douchey self-portrait, uh, or not self-portrait, the goofy portrait he had painted of himself, you see this and you go, there's no way this guy is a sports betting prodigy. This guy looks like a fraud. He looked like a complete fraud. I, I saw that picture, and before reading anything about him, I said, this guy is a fraud. You can just look at people sometimes and know this. And, of course, I'm not talking about any kind of uh, racial stereotyping. This is a white guy. So this is not one of these things where you're doing it based on, on any kind of uh, victim group where you're negatively stereotyping them. This is just a douchey white guy that's trying to make himself look rich, that thinks he's important, that wants everyone to pay attention to him, that wears $6,000 hoodies. It was so obvious from looking at him that this guy is not what he seemed to be. And that's why it's amazing to me that someone could even have $10 million who could fall for this unless this person inherited it. And unfortunately, this does happen where people inherit money who are not nearly as intelligent or street smart as their parents. And this is what happens to the money. Often scammers sniff this out and get it. Or sometimes they just make horrible investments or they, they spend irresponsibly and the money's gone. But it's sad because you'll, you'll have the parents who, who, who carefully manage their finance for their lifetime and then they die and the kids get it and the, the kids blow it. Often very quickly. That's, it's, Sad when that happens, but uh, this this was much more than that. This was someone who this is someone who defrauded people. But the 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 victim was he blew the money in some way. Either he made it himself and he just got greedy, or he inherited it and or was from a very rich family and just got it ripped off. But uh, the the ones with the biggest marks tend to be the ones who have a lot of money but didn't actually earn it themselves. Because if you did earn that money yourself, usually if you've earned that type of money yourself, there you have a certain level of street smarts to where you can't fall for really dumb scams. The Firefest scam, which of course is very different from this, uh, one of the people who was scammed the most individually was the wife of a very rich hedge fund manager. Her name was Corolla Jane. Corolla Jane uh, was was very much the socialite, the New York socialite wife who wanted more of a purpose than just being a socialite wife. So Billy McFarland, who was the head of Firefest, found her and thought, oh, perfect. Here's a socialite who really, really wants to have purpose, really wants to make her own money, 
really wants to be a businesswoman. So, okay, I'll make her a businesswoman. And he scammed her out of a lot of money and gave, in fact, gave her a prominent role in Firefest. And then she kind of became embroiled in the whole thing herself. It's actually a pretty fascinating part of it that most people have ignored. But I, I can picture these things happening. I can actually, like, without having met these people, I can actually picture some of this happening. With this guy, it's a little hard to picture, though. Because this guy, to me, wouldn't seem believable. But maybe that's because I'm looking at it from a different perspective. I'm looking at it as someone who knows about all the scammers in gambling. All the shady and shifty characters in gambling. I'm very aware of them out there. Anything brought to me, I always look with skepticism, unless it's someone I know really, really well. And know that they wouldn't do that but anything else even people i generally like uh but don't know that well i'll I'll look at with skepticism and you have to in the gambling world and i guess others who are not aware of this being a big problem in the gambling world can be fooled easily i guess he did fool a lot of different uh, athletes and even singer drake who wired the guy a hundred thousand i want to know if any of these athletes got ripped off like, did he appropriate their money? Were, was he just betting on picks for them? Or was he uh, claiming, oh, he's just going to turn their money into such and such and then just stole it? I wouldn't be surprised if he stole it and they just don't want to say anything because they have so much. They like uh, they don't want to attach themselves to him, especially ones who are going to get in trouble for, for betting in the first place. Like, if he stole from El- Odell Beckham Jr., the last thing Odell Beckham Jr. is going to go is, do is report it because then he'll get himself in much more trouble with the NFL. So that, that, those are also perfect marks. <laughs> Guides you could steal from that you know can't report you without bringing uh, very unwanted attention upon themselves. So who knows what happened there? All, the, all these guys are doing is just denying knowing him. Sorry, don't know him, never met him. And it's, it's so clear. He, he showed a lot of evidence that he really knew these people, including some pictures. There, the Everyone he claimed to have known and been friends with, uh, he provided a reasonable level of proof to USA Today, he was telling the truth. So this wasn't just a guy stealing money from someone else and blowing it in Vegas this, and pretending to be a sports bidding prodigy. He he somehow got to know these celebrities. I don't know how he did it. Because he wasn't that well-known in general. Maybe, maybe like he got introduced between ones who may have been friends. I, I, don't, I don't know how he met all these separate celebrities. Like, how do you meet Russell Westbrook? Let's, let's say you have a lot of money and you, you, you bet a lot on sports. How, how do you meet Russell Westbrook from there? How? Like, let's let's say I'm betting a hundred thousand dollars a week on sports bets. Like, let's say individual sports bets. I'm betting like between twenty and hundred thousand uh, on every one I make. Okay. Still, how how do I meet Russell Westbrook? Even if I'm winning, how do I how do I meet him? Unless there's like a, a very high profile article about me when he met these people before the article. How how would I go about meeting someone like West, Russell Westbrook and having him take an interest in me? Aside from maybe going to the, the those very high stakes poker games that he plays at, but I, I'm not reading that he was part of those. The Skordesky guy. So I don't even know how he met these celebrities, unless he would just see them and approach them and and somehow uh, convince them he wasn't just an annoying fan and that he could actually help them. Maybe he sat down with them when he saw them playing blackjack or whatever, and then would just talk to them and say, "Hey, you know, I've got the sports betting system; it can't miss. You, you don't know how much money I'm making here. Look, I'm 25. Look at look how I'm dressed here. Look at this is worth six thousand bucks. This this hoodie. And look, you, you see how much money I'm, I'm making. I'm obviously a 25 a year old guy. I don't. I have no other income. How else would I be making it? 
Maybe that's what he did. Maybe he found them at the blackjack tables. That is kind of a mystery. We'll never know because these guys don't want to admit they even know him. Even with proof, they don't want to admit they know him. So that that's not a surprising story, though. Interesting update, but uh, you're not exactly shocked to hear this, that he was actually a scammer. He was actually an embezzler. He was lying about winning. I know. It's something you would have never pictured. All right, let's move on here. 775-372-8355. I want to talk about Perlot Friedman again. Because he hasn't stopped tweeting. And there's some new stuff. There's some new stuff that has occurred since last week. He keeps bringing the hits, Perlot. It wasn't enough to tweet last week a whole storm up about how all men are gay, at least a little bit. There is no such thing as a straight guy. All men at least have some gay fantasies. All men would enjoy blowjobs from other men as long as they could just relax and enjoy it. As long as, as, long as they don't get too caught up in what's gay and what's not gay. He's trying to say he's the only enlightened one out there who realizes that uh, all men have gay fantasies and it's fine. And that we must embrace it. And we must enjoy the gay side of ourselves. And that there is no such thing as a straight man. And he was tweeting this stuff out. I'm not, I'm not even exaggerating. This is really what he's tweeting. Go to his Twitter. Perlad Friedman. P-R-A, P-R-A-H-L-A-D-F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. Perlad Friedman. No spaces, no underscores, just twitter.com slash Perlad Friedman. I have to look under other accounts because he has my main account blocked. But, yeah, he's been tweeting this. It's this weird, weeks-long thing he's been doing about uh, how every man is actually gay, to at least some extent. He's not even saying, like, well, you know, sexuality is a spectrum. Some guys who say they're straight actually have gay fantasies. He's not saying that. He's saying, no, everybody is gay to some degree. You cannot be a straight man. Not possible, he's saying. So we talked about this last week. This started on uh, January 12th. He tweeted out a BBC article about straight guys having gay fantasies, and then he just went from there. And people called him out, not as much as they should. I, I wish he didn't have me blocked, because I'd love to respond to him. I would love to tear this apart, because it's just outrageous what he's saying. And as I said last week, the worst part of this whole thing is the logic he's using is exactly the logic that was used to send gay kids to these conversion camps to convert them back to straight, where the parents say, no, we don't believe you're gay. Everybody is actually straight. Being gay is a choice. Everybody has heterosexuality in them somewhere. We're going to send you to this camp to bring it out. And they send them to these awful camps. Instead of the parents just saying, look, even if we don't, even if we preferred that you were straight, we're going to accept the fact that you're gay and that we have no control over it, and we're going to love you anyway. And if you're gay, that's that's just the way it is. And we're not going to hold it against you. And again, even if they wish that the kids weren't gay, yeah, if, if they're gay, they're gay. That's it. You can't force someone to be straight if they're gay. But Perlad is actually saying that there's no such thing as not being attracted to men. So by, by his logic, you, you should be able to send women to who claim to be lesbians. You should send them to these camps and, and get them to like men. He's saying every, everybody likes men a little bit, which, which is insane. It's insane. There, there are people out there who are 100% straight, 
And there are people out there who are 100% gay. A lot of people. There are some who are not. There are some who are mostly straight but have some gay thoughts here and there. But there are a lot of guys out there, I'm one of them, who do not have any gay tendencies. But we talked about this last week. So what, what's what's new? What has happened since last week? What has happened on Prahlad's Twitter that has changed since last week? Well, here's the, here's a tweet from January 18th. Again, we're going to do it in Prahlad's voice. Okay. I hope people are inspired by my tweets to think outside the box. If you have only been with the opposite sex, try kissing the same sex just for fun. Why not? If you haven't dated a certain race, try to. Why not? Let's stop acting like robots and just doing whatever society says. <laughs> By the way, this is, in case you don't know or remember, Prahlad is a white guy. So I'm not being racist here. This this guy's as white as I am. He just he tries to talk like he's black, which is another stupid thing. This is a white bread guy from a rich family. Uh, he is now suggesting on January 18th that he's hoping you read his tweets and that you are inspired after reading his tweets to go uh, try kissing another man. Try for fun. <laughs> try kissing the same sex just for fun. Well, look, if you're attracted to men and you're a man yourself and you want to try that, go ahead. I'm not saying don't, but if you're a straight man, you you, you shouldn't go kiss other dudes for fun. That <laughs> It won't be fun. I can tell you that I can tell you I wouldn't have any fun kissing another guy. I don't need to open my mind that I I just know I wouldn't like it. <laughs> Kiss the, try kissing the same sex just for fun. Why not? <laughs> I mean, how long is it going to go on with this? He started this on January twelfth. He's going on and on and on. So many tweets about the gay thing. So many tweets about how everybody who is not acknowledging this is just letting society pressed them into believing they're 100% heterosexual. Then he wrote on January 19th the next day, how many guys that claim 100% heterosexuality would be willing to have their pupils examined when watching gay porn. Pupils dilating indicates arousal. Studies have shown that everyone gets aroused by gay porn. Studies have shown that everyone gets aroused by gay porn. Everyone. There's not a person on this earth, according to Perlod, that can watch gay porn and not get aroused. No one. Doesn't matter if you're completely straight, you will be aroused by gay porn. Doesn't matter if you are a lesbian, you will be aroused by gay porn. Doesn't matter if you're asexual and have no sexual attraction, you will be aroused by gay porn. Everybody, everybody will be aroused by gay porn. Well, we got some other people in on this. Brian Mikon, my former radio show partner on a different site, he has responded to this. Brian Mikon says back to that tweet I just read you about the everyone gets aroused by gay porn. Mikon wrote, I'm claiming 100% hetero, willing to take the Perlod pupil porn exam, a test endorsed by Kinsey himself. But seriously, it's a sliding scale. Some don't care much about sex at all. Some need it all the time. Some are 100% straight. Some are 80-20 gay. Some coin flip by. Who cares? I hate to say it, but Mikon's right here. He says, I kind of wish I was a little bit gay. This is Mikon. Had some spots on MDMA back then where it could have been a real bruh moment, but even in a non-judgmental environment, just didn't want to kiss a dude. (laughs) 
Wow. Mike on revealing a lot here. He was on MDMA, which I didn't know he did this, but he was on MDMA around some other guys, and he thinks it could have been a real bruh moment, B-R-U-H, he puts in quotes, a real bruh moment if he was just a little bit gay and could have kissed the guy. I don't know if the guy he's referring to here was bi or gay himself, but Mike on's basically saying on MDMA, it could have made the whole experience even better if he and another dude there could have kissed, but he just he just wasn't into it. Even though it would have made- it wasn't you, Druff. He was. He didn't do that during one of the shows. He might have been talking about you. No, because we weren't doing MDMA. So uh, that that well, that counts me out. That sounded like he was on something during some of them. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what. Maybe it's when I was over there doing the shows with him. He wanted to kiss me, but uh, maybe you rejected him, and that's why there was all the hostility. Right? Maybe that. Maybe that's didn't the, even know was going. Maybe that's the root of the whole thing from eight years ago. That he uh, he. he- <laughs> But actually, no, Bicon's saying here that he actually didn't want to kiss a dude, that he was, uh, that it, it would have been a great moment. It would have been a great moment between two bras, but he, he just, he just didn't have the desire whatsoever to do it. He says, some of us are just six foot tall cis, meaning, uh, uh, the gender that you're born with. You're not, you're not saying you identify as any other gender. Uh, just six foot tall cis white males and don't wish to harm anyone. Well, you know, I, I actually can't argue with any of the stuff Mike on road, especially except for this weird MDMA stuff. But aside from that, um, he's just saying, look, some of us don't feel anything against being gay, and if we were, we would do it. But I just don't want to. That's what Mike on saying. I just, I just don't have the attraction. I just don't want to kiss dudes. I would, but I, I just don't have the desire to, so I don't. That's what he's saying, and uh, that's I, I can't argue with that point. And Perlod doesn't agree. Perlod thinks it's just, it's in you somewhere. You just gotta reach deep down. Now, I don't know if you guys know who Jay Lama is. His real name is Jake Abdallah. He's a, currently a poker coach. I think he does some videos on Doug Polk's upswing site. He used to be a limit hold'em player on Poker Stars. Uh, now it seems like he does more coaching than playing, but, but whatever. He's kind of semi-known in poker. He's not like a big name, but, a lot of people know who he is, especially if you're in the limit community. Anyway, before I get to what Jay Lama wrote to him, I had to read you Perlod's tweet first, which he responded to. 20 years ago, I was doing things only the Salva does in no limit. In no limit. Veganism will be the norm one day. People will laugh at how barbaric people were to eat meat back in the day. They will cry how racist times were back in 2020. If that tweet seems confusing, it is. But let me break it down for you in English. Okay, He's trying to say, 20 years ago, I was so ahead of my time in poker that I was doing things in No Limit Hold'em that only today's solvers can do. Solvers meaning programs that have analyzed billions of hands and have come up with the optimal way to play No Limit Hold'em. So he's saying that 20 years later, they finally have computer programs that have come to the same conclusion he came to on his own 20 years ago when he was playing his unorthodox style, that he was so ahead of the game that he knew what everybody else did not know 20 years ago in, in uh, No Limit Hold'em. So for that reason, you should believe he is ahead of his time with everything. So being vegan, he's way ahead of his time. Everybody's going to come to one day say, hey, look, uh, being vegan is, is the right way to go. It's barbaric to have eaten meat. Now, now, others take that position, too, who are vegan. So of, of all the things he says, that actually might be the only thing that ends up being true but not for the reason he thinks. Uh, what's eventually going to happen, and we're seeing it a little bit already, if you've, if you've tried the Impossible Burger at Burger King, which I haven't yet, but it, it purports to be 
a burger that actually has no meat in it that tastes just like a regular hamburger. Have you tried that burger, uh, Trader Whiskey? I have not tried the thing at uh, Burger King, but I did go to a CES party last year at um, one of the restaurants there in uh, Mandalay Bay. The, what's the one where they have the two lady chefs? Or maybe it was the Border Grill. Anyway, I didn't even... So, went to the whole party. They had, like, burgers, like Mexican food. It was awesome. Then at the end, I found out it was all the impossible. It might have been beyond, not impossible meat. But it's basically the same thing. It was unbelievable. Even the burger tasted exactly like a burger. Yeah, one of these days I'm going to try it. And I had predicted this years ago, way before they came out with this Beyond Meat. I predicted this many years ago when I'd have my debates with vegans. And I said, you know what, you guys? This is going to solve itself anyway. And probably sooner than you think. Eventually, the technology is going to be there that is going to be able to produce meat without actually having to kill animals to make it. And uh, that'll be a game changer. In fact, it'll probably become cheaper to produce meat that way than having to raise these animals and then slaughter them. And that sometime in the future, people who grew up never eating actual meat will look back and say, oh, this is super barbaric that people were killing animals and eating them then. look, yeah. but, but it's easy to say at that point because you're, 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 no animals have to be killed. At that point, you get the same meat without killing any animals. So great. If, if the choice is don't eat meat... Or, or kill animals, then it becomes a much harder choice. So that's 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 what I felt would probably happen in the future. And at some point, people will look back, going, "Well, yeah, how could they have killed animals? That's barbaric. That's crazy." Because because they have their meat anyway. So it, it's a lot tougher to just give up meat completely with the belief that you should not uh, slaughter animals for food, uh, because then you have to give up meat. If you can both have the taste of the meat and not kill the animals, that's the best of both worlds, and that's where we're eventually going to get. And maybe sooner than you think, because we already have these meats out there, as we're saying right now, these, these fake meats that are starting to taste better and better. These existed some time ago, but they, they weren't very good. But I, my belief was that eventually it's going to be indistinguishable, and not, maybe not even that long from now. So he might be right about that, but again, not for the reasons he thinks, not because the whole world wakes up and says, oh, no, no, we shouldn't eat animals as food. It'll be the whole world doesn't need to eat animals as food because there's alternatives that taste just as good. But then he says they will cry about how racist times were in 2020. So someone asked him, what does that have to do with anything? Like, like, what do you mean? How does veganism have to do with racism? He, he clarified that they don't, but they're a little associated anyway. But, but he, he kind of is making a few points at once. Basically, he is the one who's always ahead of his time. He's the one who's not racist while everybody else is. He's the one who's vegan while most other people are not. And he's the one who knew how to play Optimal No Limit Hold'em 20 years before the solvers figured out how to do it. So he's saying, I was ahead of my time in poker. That means everything else I do is correct and ahead of its time, which is absurd. In fact, if we've learned anything from examining the lives of great poker players, they tend to suck at everything else that's not poker. That's much more common than the great poker player being great at everything. Stu Unger was a great example of this. Stu Unger, who is considered by many to possibly be the greatest poker player of all time, died very early because of, uh, he died broke because of how badly he mismanaged his life. Stu Unger would frequently have a dark house because he wouldn't pay his electric bill, not just once in a while, like this happened all the time. Like basic things, he couldn't take care of himself, but yet he was this amazing poker prodigy. So just because you're really good at poker, that does not translate that you know everything have the best judgment on everything, are good at everything. It's, it's not like that. Prahlad thinks it does. Prahlad thinks this translates. And by the way, he's exaggerating how good he was in No Limit Hold'em. He did have some unorthodox strategies 
that at the time were very effective. But notice that he signed with UB. Why did he do that when he was so against corporate sponsorships? I told you guys last week. Because he had an 800K downswing on PokerStars. And I believe that busted him between that and his lifestyle. So you say, he says you should listen to him, but this is a guy who had to sign with a super corrupt company that he knew was super corrupt in order to keep that lifestyle up because he screwed up everything in his life outside of uh, his poker strategy. And again, the way he was playing in, in the 2000s is not what the, the solvers are saying to do today. He just had some unorthodox styles that people had not figured out how to deal with yet. What these solvers have done is it's evolved the game some to where a lot of the strategies that worked very well back in the 2000s no longer work against the best players who are aware of how to counter them. And that's where the, the solvers have come up with how to counter these. So he's not even being honest about that. But anyway, back to Jay Lama. So in response to this weird tweet about the solver and the veganism and the racism, Jay Lama wrote this. Poker is a complex interaction between humans. The idea that you can solve human interaction is a construct of patriarchal whiteness. Super problematic to promote these backwards ideas in 2020. Do better. <laughs> so he's using this logic back on Perlod, saying that Perlod is the one who's backwards, that poker's about human interaction, and that uh, if you think you can solve human interaction, then you're a product of patriarchal whiteness, which is a, a term that's used among uh, social justice warrior types like Perlod. So he's using this logic back on Perlod being intentionally ridiculous. So he's saying to Perlod, look, you're, you're promoting patriarchal whiteness by saying you can solve poker. So do better, Perlod. So this went straight over Perlod's head. He totally didn't understand he was being mocked sarcastically, and he gave a serious response. He says, yeah, you run a training site and you're anti-solver? This is laughable. What the fuck? Why would anybody use your training site? <laughs> So he really thought this was about the anti-solver, not that it was mocking him. So all these people responded to it laughing at Perlod. Mac Lance wrote, I'm dying, and put a, a, a laughing emoji. Kevin McPhee wrote, he's trolling you. These are all people who've listened to the show, by the way. Kyle Ray, another limit player from back in the day, was also trying to mock Perlod, saying, button clicker, referring to how Perlod was uh, mostly an online poker player. Button clicker. Having an accidental button clicker strategy now vindicated AI feels he must be right about all important human policy. So he's mocking Perlod for being <laughs> just a guy who's like banging on buttons and that uh, a solver happened to match what he was doing. So of course Perlod again responds seriously. Accidental? LOL, yeah. I randomly beat everybody in the world. So Kyle Ray says back, and now some 10 years later, you know why. That should humble your theoretical thinking on other topics a bit. And he prolots his back, what that means is I don't need a solver. And poker in life, I figured out on my own. <laughs> then he also continued to answer to Jay Lama saying, glad you don't know much about solvers. They've solved many forms of poker to the point that random 21-year-olds are already world-class. Oops, veganism is forward thinking that you should really consider. And racism's all over the world in 2020. Tweet better. So someone responded back, some guy named Johnny Lack just said, he's trolling you, genius. So Perlod, he, he's so self-absorbed and so sanctimonious, he, he doesn't even understand when people are trolling him and using his own ridiculous words against him. Like, people are being purposely ridiculous to mock him, and, and he doesn't get it. 
What? You're anti-solver? Well, I'm, I'm going to tell people not to use your trading site. And so he doesn't get it. And it's not like Perlot's dumb. It's just like he's so wrapped up in this, he actually doesn't see it. He's not trying to be clueless, but just the he, he's closing himself out from anyone else's ideas to where he doesn't even understand when they're mocking him. Well, he's done other things. I've talked about the racism angle. He's also been going off on the belief that everybody has to be attracted to black women. If you're not, you're racist. This tweet is from January 18th. If you're attracted to women of a certain race, it's because of systematic racism. You've been brainwashed to think that race is unattractive. If you truly love women like most men claim, you would be attracted to women of every race. Where do I start with this? Again, this is Perlot assuming because he is attracted to a certain thing that you have to be. If he wants to kiss men, then you're just homophobic if you don't want to kiss men. If he likes black women, then you're racist if you are not attracted to black women. He has decided what you have to be attracted to. And if you're not, then something bad about you. You're racist, you're homophobic, maybe both. I wonder if you're not attracted to black men. You're both racist and homophobic, right? So then he tweeted all these dumb, all these pictures of black women going, how could someone not be attracted to this? Explain. How could someone not be attracted to this? Explain. How could someone not be attracted to this? Explain. He just kept doing the same thing over and over and over. And the, the funniest one is see, uh, so he tweets these just normal, like attractive black women and saying, well, you know, how can you not be attracted to this? And then the funniest one is he tweeted out a woman who was bald and said the same thing. <laughs> so what now? What if you're attracted to black women, but you just don't like women who are bald? Like, I, I love white women, but if, if there's a white woman who's bald, I'm not attracted to her. I'm sorry. Like, it's just I, I'm not attracted to bald women. Most men are not. So <laughs> now you've got to be attracted to bald black women, too. Not just black women, but bald black women. I don't know what you are. If you like black women except for the bald black women, I don't know what you are. But Prahlad won't like you. So he put, he tweeted all these different pictures of black women, including a bald one. You're supposed to like all of them. You're supposed to be sexually attracted to all of them. Why doesn't he understand that you don't choose what you are sexually attracted to? That, that's that been the whole point of the gay rights movement for the last few decades. Last few decades has been, we're not choosing to be gay, we just are gay. We're not choosing to be bi, we just are bi. Like, what, what happened to that? What happened to just... You like who you happen to like. Right. And it's like everybody's an individual. Yeah. So it's like, you can't, you know, so it's like, the, the, you know, I don't know. Why are we spending time on this clown? <laughs> but was there, was there a, was there like a, did he make a video when he decided to go to UB? Or was it just a blog yes, post? Yes, yes, yes. You know, he made a video. Thought- he made a video. It was, it was a really cringeworthy video, too. It was them, uh, it was he's like listening to music and, and kind of jamming, right, jamming right, along with right. the beats, and then they happen to surprise him there, as as if they're really just walking in into his house. And he's, he turns around, like, yeah, hey, what's up? And then he goes back and turns around and jams to the beats. It was, it was so phony and contrived. And then he goes, yeah, this is the old UB, then there's the new UB. This is the new UB. That's actually part of the stupid ad they did there. Uh, there's so many things about him are just either either phony or contrived or, or just totally sanctimonious without any kind of uh, legitimate basis for it. And it's it's amazing that he's, this isn't parody. He's not trying to troll people. He really believes the things he's tweeting. And it's amazing. And he's actually getting less pushback on this than he should. He's getting pushback. There's people who are making fun of him and saying how insane he's being. But there, there's not as much as you would expect. You'd expect more. But I think there's actually people afraid to say anything back. 
Some because he's yeah, – some still see him as like a poker star, which he really isn't anymore. He doesn't play much poker anymore. But uh, some see him as like a poker star and they, they don't want to get on his bad side. And some others are just uh, afraid if they say anything back, they'll look like they're the racist or they're the homophobe. So uh, they, they just don't say anything back. But I'm surprised he's not getting more pushback than he is for these ridiculous statements. And And what's funny is that in an attempt – to come off as enlightened and woke and everything else that he wants you to see, he's actually the most bigoted here because he's, he's saying that uh, everybody has to be attracted to what he says they have to be. And that's exactly what people have been fighting against for many years. People people have been fighting against this, you know, you know, say, like in the 50s and 60s about race, where uh, you know people would people who were attracted, white guys who were attracted to black women were shamed for it. And we're given a very hard time. You know how how can you like these black women? You know you shouldn't do that. You should date your own race. And uh, eventually, it came to be accepted that yeah, date whatever race you want. It's fine. Whatever you're attracted to is fine. Then the the gay thing, people were shamed for being gay. And and now okay, if you're if you're gay, fine. If you're bi, fine. Just whatever you're attracted to, date. Now Perlada's coming. You're saying no. You're going to be attracted to the races I say you need to be attracted to, and you're going to be attracted to the genders I say you're going to be attracted to. And if you're not, there's something wrong with you. Who's the backward one here? But he doesn't get it. He just, uh, just one time he tweeted about how, uh, I, I mentioned this last week about how a lot of people in poker just don't get it. They do bad things and they, they don't bother to look at what they've done in the past. They just want everyone to think they're a good person. I go, wait a minute. Who does that apply to most? He didn't even realize he was <laughs> talking funny. about, he didn't realize he was talking about himself. He didn't even realize he was talking about himself. They, I've never seen someone who's so not self-aware, so self-unaware. I just wanted to give this little update uh, because there's so much, there's so much gold in the account. Uh, Perlod Friedman, I suggest you follow it. Don't say anything critical, though. He might block you. Maybe that's why they don't say anything. He just blocks them all. <laughs> Maybe you haven't figured it out because I can't say anything. I've been blocked a long time ago. All right. So I'd give you some of those solid gold tweets. Someone just texted me in the chat. Uh, Perlod sounds like one of those younger YouTube kids who go crazy right before their channel is terminated. <laughs> He is going crazy about the gay thing. I will say that. He's going totally crazy over the gay thing. So many tweets related to guys being attracted to other guys and it's okay over and over and over and over. For sure he's been having these feelings and, and is trying to like justify it in his mind. He didn't just come up with this out of nowhere. There's no chance. Okay, moving on. A WSOP.com player is claiming shenanigans that they did a Super Bowl drawing on the wrong day and therefore, the entire contest and the drawing and the rake ones paid to earn tickets of the drawing should be invalid. This is another PokerFraudAlert.com exclusive here. No other outlet is covering this. And in my covering this, I was able to get the true story. So some people just report the news. I actually try to contribute to it. So here's what's going on. Paul DeWald, who I hadn't heard of before, but he's a poker player. He's on Twitter as Poker is All Luck, exactly as it would be spelled, all one word. Poker is All Luck. It's actually three L's in a row. All and luck next to each other becomes three L's. So it kind of looks like Poker is All Luck, but it's, it's really just Poker is All Luck if you just type it out. That's his Twitter name. You'll see the stuff he's been tweeting. But this is what he wrote. Just contact, uh, join me in contacting Nevada Gaming at, then give the phone number, WSOP.com Super Bowl promotion drawn on an incorrect date with no proof it was random or a fair drawing. 
demand rake they took during that period from each player to be given back to the players who played. And then he provided what he showed was evidence. On January 20th, he got back a response from WSOP.com support. His name, by the way, on WSOP.com is To The Moon. He makes that public in this tweet. So it says, hey, To The Moon, thanks for contacting us. My name is Tiffany, and I'll be helping you today. To The Moon, a review of your account shows you've earned 2584 Super Bowl entries. However, our sit-and-go to the Super Bowl promotion ended on 119.20. This was written on 120.20. The drawing was concluded, and a winner was already chosen. Thank you for participating. It's been a pleasure having you as a player, and we look forward to helping you again in the future. And it is signed, Best Tiffany B. So what's wrong with this here? And he showed another screenshot to show the issue. Is It lists the different uh, prizes here. I said earlier it's a prize to go to Vegas. It's actually a prize to actually see the Super Bowl in Miami. So here's the prizes you'll get. One grand prize winner will get two tickets to the 2020 NFL Super Bowl in Miami, plus a $3,000 travel stipend. However, the winner is responsible for booking their own travel and hotel accommodations. Remember that. That'll be important later. So the prize value they claim is $10,000. I don't know if these seats that they're really getting for the Super Bowl are worth 3500 each, but whatever. They're claiming two tickets plus $3,000 cash is worth ten k. That's the grand prize. Second prize is a $500 NFL shop gift card. There's one of those being given away. There's five third prizes of $150 NFL gift shop cards. There's 15 fourth prizes of $50 NFL gift shop cards. So the total value of all these prizes is $12,000. Not the greatest promotion. To be honest, the only real good prize here is the grand prize. Everything else is just gift shop cards. And unless you're a huge NFL fan, I mean, who, who really cares? But they say total of 22 prizes valued at $12,000 total. Drawing will take place on one twenty one twenty at approximately 1 p.m. Eastern. Okay, so he circled that too. And you basically earn entries by playing in uh, playing on the site. I'm not sure if all the games that earn you entries are just certain ones, but whatever. You, some kind of play on the site earned you entries, and he earned uh, 2,584 entries and did not win. So he's upset because they are supposed to do this drawing on January 21st at 10 a.m. Pacific time, and instead... He was told on January 20th, the day before, yeah, we already did the drawing yesterday on the 19th, and it's done. Sorry, you lost. So he was pissed. He was pissed thinking that it's very possible that this was not a fair drawing in the first place. He says there's no proof it was random or fair, and they also drew it too early. So I was interested in this. I said, well, that is weird. Why would they draw this early? And does he have a legitimate complaint? If he really was playing these games, for example, on January 20th, still thinking he's earning towards this one on January 21st, and it was already over, and he's still playing, thinking he's earning entries, shouldn't he at least get the rake back for those games he was playing? And possibly, if they do the drawing at a different time when they say they will, if they end it early, maybe they should give everybody the rake back for the, the time they were playing this promotion, because it wasn't what people thought it was. Also, I wasn't sure what the legal standing was on this. I wasn't sure if there was any Nevada law being broken by WSOP.com. 
by ending the promo early and doing the drawing on the 19th instead of on the 21st. Now, it is clear these screenshots he posted are legitimate. There's no dispute about that. It is clear that the drawing was done two days earlier than they claimed. That definitely happened. Well, a wrench was thrown into this by, of all people, John Mahaffey. And the reason I say of all people is because John Mahaffey's had a lot of issues with WSOP.com. He wrote a a scathing article about a big uh, problem he had with them back and forth where they were threatening to ban him from all Caesar's properties because of negative things he wrote about his experience in the site. I mean, he he really had it out with them and Seth Polanski specifically. So he's the last one to post a defense of WSOP.com when it's undeserved. But John Mahaffey, believe it or not, to show you how this guy is unbiased with everything he posts because uh, he actually took WSOP's side in this one, which I never thought I'd see the day when John Mahaffey is defending WSOP.com, but he, he did here. Listen to this. Well, it's kind of a defense. He wrote, I think the site has a mountain of issues beyond almost anything I've seen in decades. However, my research shows that the promo ended on one one nineteen twenty one. Sure, terms and conditions say the drawing was on one twenty one, but I don't see how announcing the winner early is an issue. What am I missing? That's a good point. If the promo earning period really did end on January 19th, why does it matter if they go wait another day and a half before actually doing the drawing? Once the promo period's over, you can do the drawing anytime. It's just as fair. That's a good point. Paul DeWald wrote back, why keep it a secret that they're doing it early? And who is looking over the drawing to make sure it was legit and not just a friend of someone who works there? Why not advertise this harder and make the drawing live on Twitch or something? Real name of winner not available? So then another tweeter also questioned DeWald and said, if they're going to rig the drawing, they can just as easily rig it at the originally scheduled time as they can a day early. I don't see what holding it early has to do with rigging it. That's a great point. If you're going to rig the drawing and and secretly give the Super Bowl tickets to your friend, you're not going to change anything else and and bring up any kind of suspicion. Why why would you do it a day and a half early and then rig it? If you're going to rig it, you're going to make everything else look totally legitimate and, as you said, so no one suspects anything. The second you change something that weird... That probably proves they didn't do it. Right, right. <laughs> right, that makes it look more honest that they actually ended it early. So so, so that's a great point. That is a very, very good point. So I, at the time, I couldn't figure out why they did this early. Because they say they're going to do it the 21st. Why do it the 19th? And I see why it was a little alarming for Paul DeWald. And I, I'm not trying to bash Paul DeWald here because it is a little bit alarming to say... On the 20th, the reason he emailed them is he probably wanted to know how many entries he earned so he, he could kind of ascertain his chances. And then they're like, yeah, you earned 2584 entries, but uh, you lost. It's already over. <laughs> he's like, well, wait a minute. It's supposed to be tomorrow. So he's emailing them to find out what shot he has tomorrow, and it actually was done yesterday. So I understand why that's a bit off-putting and weird. But at the same time, that doesn't mean they rigged it. And it doesn't mean they've done anything illegal or wrong. They did something weird, but not necessarily illegal or wrong. So at the time, I thought, well, this is weird ending it early, but I don't think it's illegal, and I don't think it's rigged for the reasons we just said. But they probably have a right to end it early, and I at the time I thought, well, I suppose the case could be made that anything he played on January 20th, that he deserves the rake back, but then I found out after that, that they they did make it clear in their terms that on January 19th, at the end of the day, that 
that's it. You're not earning any more tickets. So he can't even claim that on January 20th he thought he's earning tickets. If he did, it was his fault for not reading it correctly. So they were clear, it turns out, that at the end of January 19th, no more entry tickets are being earned. So at this point, we're just looking at why did they do this early? And does he really have a reason to complain about that? Well, since I covered this on Poker Fraud Alert, uh, I decided to also look into it. And I have come upon information, shall I say. Not going to tell you how. Not going to tell you who gave it to me. But I've come upon information. I have the reason the drawing was changed. Trader Risky, do you have any idea why it might have been changed? Unless you read the thread, then don't answer. But uh, I did not read the thread, but my guess would be people have to book their travel if they're going to have to get out there. Uh, maybe they did it early because they realized they weren't giving enough notice. That is correct. Because of this, where they are not giving people a hotel room or a flight, they realized that the more time, the better, especially for the flight. The hotel, you can usually get... Uh, pretty easily. But again, the hotels are probably expensive there too. Probably a lot of people in town for the Super Bowl. But especially the the flight there, the sooner the better. And if you're deciding on the 21st, that gives them less time. So why not give them two more days by doing it on the 19th when all the entries are already in anyway? That was why they did it. So that was the information that I have come upon and I believe it. And did they communicate this well? No, they communicated this very poorly. What they should have done was email everybody that they are doing the drawing now, or they've just done it now, as soon as the earning period was over. It seems like they did it like right when the earning period was over. But they should have emailed, we've just done this, and such and such person won. And by the way, there was some confusion whether they named the winner, but they named the screen name of the winner. They didn't name the real name, but they named the screen name, and they said they did that because they didn't want to have to out people's screen names because some people don't want that public. So that's reasonable, too. You don't have to give out a real name if this is a site where people are playing using aliases that they may not want associated with a real name. Like, think think on any online site which has screen names. Would you be happy if the site published your real name when you win something? You'd probably be pissed if you're not public about who you are. So that's fine, too. So the one thing that WSOP.com did wrong is instead of just coming out with it and saying we did this early, here's the screen name who won, here's why we did it early because we need the person to have more time to book their own travel so we're trying to do them a favor sorry for saying the 21st but we later realize that's not a good date to do it, we might as well do it as soon as we can so we have congratulations to the winners and sorry for those of you that didn't win and uh, you know, good luck next time if they did that then there would be very little objection to this the problem was they didn't say anything, and you have a guy saying, hey, well, how many entries do I have for tomorrow? Eh, you actually already lost. We've already done it. What? Yep, you've already lost. Sorry. You get a big zero. But, Truff, they didn't announce it anywhere? I don't think they publicly announced that they had uh, – they may have put it somewhere on their website, but it wasn't – it obviously wasn't clear because this guy didn't know about it. This guy this guy didn't get an email saying, like, oh, we've done our drawing early. He, he emailed them say, how many entries do I have? And they'd be like, oh, you earned this many, but it's already over. That's how he found out. Right, because, I mean, that would definitely be fishy if they didn't announce it somewhere. What, they just told the one person that won? They probably posted it on the website or something. I bet they right. just didn't email people. But but if they did that, I mean, I think that that's a point for them. It's 
I, I think they're probably fine in everything except the communication sucked. That's that's what I think here. I think that when you change something like that, you don't want people emailing the next day going, how many entries do I have? Oh, actually, it's already over. Like, that's a bad look. It makes you look shady. I, I believe they weren't being shady. I believe they were being honest here. But it makes you look shady. It was a screw-up. They should have, when you change anything like that, you email everybody, we changed it, we did it for this reason, it's a good reason, you can relate to it, I'm sure. Anybody who's bought an airline ticket knows that you get, uh, the closer you get, the worse it gets when you're less than a month away. So that's, they should have put that out there and people, everybody except for those who are unreasonable would have accepted it. But they they didn't communicate it well, and that's what happened. So I don't blame Paul DeWald for being alarmed by this. I think he did jump to too many conclusions. I think he, the whole thing about it being rigged or not fair, I mean, that's totally separate. If he, if he's not happy with their process that he feels that they're doing this drawing without it being monitored by anybody, but here's the truth. All these casino drawings are not really monitored. They just say, this is who won. You don't watch them pulling a, a paper out of a, a, a big stack of, of, of entry papers. These are electronic, a computer. Really? Does. Don't they do that in Hustler, Hustler Draft? Don't they have one of those, uh, they might. Things I thought I saw. I they, they might, but most most of these uh, casino promotions are it's done by computer. These drawings, and you just have to take your, their word for it that it's legitimate. And yes, there have been rigged drawings before, not with WSOP.com, but there have been casinos that have rigged these before for their biggest whales. Not not so much usually for friends of the people who are doing the drawing, but sometimes the casino will do it to make the whales feel like they're winning. Or feel like they're lucky. And there's been fines over that. So it's not to say all drawings are legitimate, but this one is no different than other drawings, and I don't think this one was rigged in any way. And definitely the change of date has nothing to do with it being rigged. And I don't think it was rigged. So that's... Trust me, the information I came upon about why they changed it is very likely accurate. I got it from a good source. And this is really... Mostly a non-story. I'm just bringing it up because the accusation was put out there and I got involved in it and I made a thread about it. And sometimes what's just poor communication can end up looking a lot worse than it really was. And that was one of these cases here. And believe me, you guys know if the World Series does something stupid or WSOP.com does something stupid, I'll call them out. I have before. And I will. You know, the people who are in charge of the World Series know this. They know that I'm always fair to them. They know that I'm always willing to look at this from all sides and that I don't come in with a bias. I don't come in with a pro world series bias and I don't come with an anti world series bias. I think the fact that I play in the world series would show you that I, that by itself would show that I couldn't have too much of a bias against them. And uh, I've, you've heard on my world series of poker complaint stories that some conclude the world series screwed up and some conclude that the accusations against them aren't fair. This one, I wouldn't say the accusations unfair. I see why the guy was alarmed. I'm just saying that, when you look past how the appearance was, it actually wasn't a big deal. PokerStars Pennsylvania has released their December numbers, and we're going to discuss what that means. There is only one online poker site in Pennsylvania that is legal, and that is a site we've been talking about today, PokerStars. PokerStars Pennsylvania only open to those who are physically standing in the state of Pennsylvania that opened uh, in November, but November was not a full month. So the first full month of operation they had was December. And they have released their statistics. Actually, the 
Pennsylvania Gaming Control Board released the statistics that uh, $2.5 million in revenue was generated by Poker Stars Pennsylvania. So is that good or bad? They averaged about 400 players on their site at once over all the time. That, that, that was their average. And they're doing much better than the New Jersey Poker Stars. Much better. So that's already a good sign. Even though New Jersey is actually a, a market that's merged with Nevada and Delaware, Poker Stars Pennsylvania is doing better. They actually have a peak of almost 800 players these days. Poker Stars New Jersey is, is lagging a lot behind that. They average 112 players online with a peak of uh, only a little over 200. So Poker Stars Pennsylvania has been a success compared to New Jersey thus far. It's doing four times better. Four times better sounds huge, but Poker Stars New Jersey is a complete fail site. So four t- it's four times a fail site is what it is. Four times better than, not four times a fail site, but four times better than a fail site. And I will say that New Jersey does have competition, though. New Jersey has WSOP.com. Pennsylvania does not. So that might change things if that were to occur. The $2.5 million is not bad, but this this isn't what PokerStars was looking for joining Pennsylvania. They were looking to do better than this. And the gross gambling revenue in the entire state of Pennsylvania, this is all casinos in Pennsylvania online and otherwise, they brought in uh, $291.8 million in December. So this $2.5 million was less than 1% of that. So that shows that online poker is not exactly comprising very much of the overall gambling that's going on in Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania Online Sportsbooks won $8.4 million in December 2019. The That was just the online section of it. The brick-and-mortar sportsbooks in Pennsylvania also won another $3 million. But just comparing the sports to the poker, the sports was about three times better, more than three times better. The New Jersey revenue overall was better in uh, gaming. They they won uh, $562.7 million in the New Jersey market. That's the second biggest gambling market in the country behind Nevada. So New Jersey's a bigger market, yet PokerStars... Pennsylvania is doing far better than PokerStars New Jersey. So what does this really mean? PokerStars Pennsylvania is not a complete fail, but it's not blowing up huge. It's not become a huge thing. 400 players online average, 800 players during the peak. It's not terrible, but it's not great. It's it's smaller than like Bovada and Ignition. So that's not wonderful. It's uh, it's decent, but it's not wonderful. It is indicative that there is hope that if you get a lot of these markets merging together, we could have a thriving online poker site. So think if you were to merge Pennsylvania with the other uh, states, and then if you add more states, especially large ones like California or New York, then we could have a player pool that's in the thousands most of the day. Then we can start having a lot more games running. 
So this is not showing that uh, the pencil, Poker Stars Pennsylvania is going to make big money. What it is showing is that there is still some appetite for legalized online poker, despite its failure in New Jersey and Nevada thus far. Failure meaning it's not done, but it's it's not doing very well. Pennsylvania is the first state where online poker is doing okay. And the only way we're going to have anything resembling, and I, I even mean resembling, what we once had in online poker is for these states to merge together. In fact, to even resemble what we currently can play the non-legal sites, the illegal sites like ACR and Bovada, we need sites, these states to merge the action and not tiny states like Delaware merging in did nothing. That was, that gave Delaware residents the ability to play active sites, but that's it. It didn't do very much at all for the overall player pool size. That's the report out of Pennsylvania. Also, I will say that it's new. December was their first full month. So maybe they will grow in January. Maybe they will grow in February. I'll be interested to see the numbers in January and February. Maybe they still have some time to continue getting bigger. Overall, I would say it's a good sign. Overall, I'm happy to see that finally one of these legalized online poker sites isn't a fail site with with a uh, hundred something people average on every day. So that's uh, yes, there's some fragmentation in the New Jersey market, and that's a problem too. There's just too many of them launched, but it's not just that. It just seems like it's just doing better in in general in Pennsylvania. It just seems to be more of an appetite to play online poker in. Uh, Pennsylvania than there is in New Jersey. I'm not sure the reason why. Otherwise, the gambling-wise, the two states have a lot of similarities. They both uh, have casinos. They both have enough general interest in gambling among the population. They both are near a major metropolitan area. New Jersey has its proximity to New York City. In fact, a lot of people who work in New York City live in New Jersey, across the river. And Pennsylvania, of course, has Philadelphia. I don't know what the difference is here. Maybe it's just that there is one site, but Poker Stars Pennsylvania, they're off to an okay start. We will monitor as the months continue to pass by and hope that other states that are of uh, significance jump in and start to merge. Another update has been released by the World Series of Poker that gives us a little more view into the events. We just can't get a complete schedule out of them, but supposedly we may see that next week, if not probably the week after, so we're very close to getting a full World Series of Poker schedule. I guess they're getting me to talk about it every week. Every week I'm giving them unintentional promotion by having a a World Series just released more (laughs) events this week. I mean, they could split this up like doing it two per week, and they could have me talking about it all the way till May. That would be the smartest thing to do. I don't want well, to- hopefully they heard the segment about the uh, drawing that happened early because people had to do their travel and stuff. Yeah. So now they're going to take that and get it out right away. <laughs> so here's here's the newest thing that they put out. Is uh, Remember, last week was the value menu, which got a little bit of controversy with the name they used. And that was for the events of $1,000 or less. Now... They are releasing 
what they call uh, this one doesn't have as much of a theme, but this one they're releasing a lot of different freeze outs. They they had mentioned previously, which confused me, that there's going to be one freeze at least one freeze out every week. And then like I looked at the schedule they had released and I saw like one freeze out total. <laughs> What's going on here? I don't understand. Where where are all the freeze outs? I see one on May 27th when it, the series begins, but where's the rest of the freeze outs? Well, here they are. This is kind of the freeze out schedule, but there's more than just freeze outs here. But they've published 12 new events. If you like freeze outs, which again are tournaments where you cannot rebuy or add on or anything, you just start with a stack and Whatever you do with it, you do with it, and when you're out, you're out. The freeze-outs are as follows on this schedule. May 27th for for $1,000. May 31st, uh, there's actually one for 25000 That's Heads Up. The Heads Up event, which I thought was gone, is actually back. For some reason, when they released the championship event, they're like, oh, these are all the events, 10 k or more, and they're like, psych, no, it's not. We have some extra ones that are, that are 25 k or more. So this is one of them. This is uh, the uh, Heads Up. Uh, no limit, or sorry, this is a high. Hold, hold on, I, I I misread something. There is a heads up on May thirty first, which is a freeze out. Uh, yeah, twenty five thousand. I I didn't misread it. Never mind. I just misread. I just misread my misreading of it. Sorry, folks. So there's the freeze out heads up event, twenty five k buy in. You may say twenty five k. I thought it was ten k. Well, it was. As they change this year, you now must put up 25000 to play Heads Up, No Limit, Hold Them in tournament format. Maybe they're trying to narrow down the field. I don't know. They, they don't like doing the Heads Up events because it takes up a lot of tables. They only get two at each table, so it wastes a lot of tables. They don't like it. It's, it's labor-intensive, so I think they're trying to shrink this event. I thought they just killed it, but now they just kicked it up to twenty five k. Another regular freeze-out, No Limit. This one, this one is uh, 1500 on June 4th. There's another one, 2500 on June 11th. There's another one, 500 for lower budget folks on June 15th. June 18th is a $3,000 freeze out no limit. This is actually called freeze out no limit. They, they used to just be called no limit hold'em, but now they're called freeze out no limit to really, really hammer into your head that they're not allowing rebuys or, or add-ons or uh, or re-entries during flights or whatever. They, they're they really trying to hammer in your head, no, this is really complete freeze-out. This is the first year they're calling it freeze-out, and this is a response to Norman Chad and others criticizing all the rebuys and re-entries in tournaments these days. So these are not new events. These are just events that they're now calling freeze-out. June 21st, another one from 5K. On June 28th is a freeze-out that is called the Mystery Bounty, which is kind of a carnival event. I will explain that shortly. And that's it. There's also uh, a 250k super high roller, which is one rebuy in case you have 500k to spend. That's on June 27th. So all you, all you listening to the show with 250k to spend on a tournament, uh, remember that date, June 27th. I'm sure there's a lot of you. Then uh, on July 7th, there's a high roller PLO for 50k that wasn't previously announced. That's one rebuy if you have 100k to spend on it. But anyway, let's get back to the Mystery Bounty No Limit Hold'em. What is Mystery Bounty? Well, the World Series probably was looking at poker stars and saying, well, you know what's kind of cool? These spin-and-goes and these other little carnival games they have there where people win extra money based on pure chance. It's no longer enough just to have the normal luck that comes with poker. We want to add luck upon luck to where 
were giving extra money every so often, completely randomly, to someone who just hasn't earned it or won it. They just happen to luck into it. So this is happening with the mystery bounty. The mystery bounty is a bounty event, $1,500 buy-in, no rebuys, where every person you knock out, you get $100. But wait, there's more. See, it's not just $100. It's that at least 100 bounties are going to be 2500 or more. Hmm. Now, this is selected randomly. Each person is a bounty. Each person you knock out, there's a bounty on them. And they don't know how much it is. It's not like people are labeled like, I, I'm a $2,500 bounty. You just knock someone out and you find out afterwards what the bounty was. How do you find this out? Well, um, I guess they all get issued a bounty chip and they probably have numbers on them. This is my guess. They probably have numbers on them and then at the end you go turn it in and they tell you what you've won. So you you don't know who are the higher bounties. Each person has a bounty. They're all 100, but then there's at least 100 of them that are 2,500 or more, and there's going to be at least one, and they say at least it probably has to do with the field size, but there's going to be at least one, which is going to be... $100 billion! I would play that. No, it's, it's actually going to be a $250,000. $250,000 will be given away to at least one person just for knocking someone out. So you you could brick the event. You you could be out. You could be the second one out in the event and win two hundred fifty k. Isn't that crazy? If the if the first one out is the person you knock out and they happen to be the two hundred fifty thousand dollar bounty, and then you're the second one out, you will have won two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Wow. So this has absolutely nothing to do with how far you make it, except of course you have to knock people out. So if if you don't knock anyone out, you're not going to get any of these. Now, where's this money coming from? Where's the 250K coming from? Where are these uh, 99 plus bounties of 2,500 coming from? We're talking about at least $500,000 of extra bounties. So where are they coming from? Is the World Series of Poker just uh, kicking in the extra money just to be nice? Maybe they started a foundation to help the poker players. Yeah, maybe it's the Bounty Foundation. Maybe they got it from uh, this Gorodetsky character. He won so much sports betting, he's, instead of buying more Louis Vuitton hoodies, he's just donating $500,000 of his stolen money. Maybe they, they tricked an investor into giving it. No, it's going to come from the prize pool. So before you get too excited about this, uh, this is money that's going to come out of the prize pool that will reduce your prize if you cash normally in it. Now, that's always the case with bounty events, but now we have 500 additional K going towards the bounties. Now, I will say that the... I don't know if they still have a regular bounty event. I played in a bounty event once, and I cashed in it. And I believe I knocked three people out, which got me... And I think the bounties were $500. So I believe by knocking three people out, I got back my buy-in. And then I think I also cashed 2800 on top of it. So I don't know if I did better or worse based upon the bounties versus the place I finished. I, I ran fairly deep and I got kind of a crappy cash considering how far I ran in the event. But uh, the bounties, that did give me 1500 back from it. So keep in mind that they were taking out 
a third of the prize pool in those events the, where the bounties are 500 and you're paying 1500 to enter. A third of that was already going to bounties. So it may be like the same proportion goes to the bounty. There may be the same amount going to the bounty they're distributing differently where instead of 500 for everybody, it's 100 for everybody except uh, the, if you get lucky, you get someone who's 2500 or someone who's 250,000. 250, is this a big deal? No. But what's a little annoying about this is that the old bounty event at least there's some skill to how much you're going to win where you, you'd have to adjust your play to where you may try to knock someone out, whereas before that wasn't as important. It's important to chip up, of course, but if you had the opportunity to knock someone out, you may be willing to take additional chances to get those $500 bounties, especially since the entry to the tournament is only 1500 You get three of those, you've broken even at minimum. Now... Uh, you can't really do that. Now you're you're just getting uh, 100 per, and you've got to hope that you happen to luck into one of the bigger bounties. Now, some of you smarter folk out there may say to me, hold on a second, if they're taking the same amount out for bounties as they were before and just distributing it differently, then it's the same thing. Well, kind of. No, but not really, Draft. This is a huge luck factor. Well, you'd have to even be at the same table as those people. Well, right. We, we're sort of thinking the same way. The problem is here is that it introduces way more variance into the bounties, where before there was no variance aside from just knocking people out. That uh, Before you just knew each person you knocked out, you'd get 500 bucks. Now, your expect- even if your expectation is the same 500 bucks on average, m- much of that is going to that one bounty. So you think you're probably not going to get it. It's one. It's it's kind of like the same logic I use when I tell people about the expected loss when playing video poker. That if you're not playing that many hands, you can't really count the royal flush as your expected win. If you're going to barely play any hands, you're probably not hitting a royal. So you should you should expect to lose more than that, even if mathematically your expected loss is different. Because in that short time, you're probably not going to hit a royal flush. Same thing here. Uh, whereas before, me knocking out three people and getting fifteen hundred in bounties wasn't that unlikely. I did better than average, but it wasn't super unlikely. I wasn't like, wow, I'm so lucky to have knocked out three people. Now for me to get 1,500 in bounties, I'd have to get pretty damn lucky. So this makes it very top-heavy for the few who get lucky that hit these bigger bounties, and everybody else gets much less. So like in that same event, for the same buy-in, I would have taken home 300 in bounties instead of 1,500, which is a pretty big difference. So this, this really it, – it introduces unnecessary variance into the bounties that wasn't there before. And since you can't, if you could play this over and over and over and over every day, then yes, it would average out over time. But since you can't, since this is a once a year thing, provided they even do it next year, now you're never going to play enough of these to where it's going to average out lifetime. So all you're doing is adding a lot of top heavy variance to this, where most of us are going to walk away with less money from this. Which and Druff, do you know if the if if you know people are bounties. Do you not know how much they are until you bust them and they open some type of envelope or something? Yes. Or do they yes. Know? No, you don't know. That's why, they, that's why they call it mystery. Oh, got it. Yeah. Otherwise, people will just be constantly going all in to bust. The, and if you have more chips on the guy with the 250K. I was going to say, that'd be like a family pot. <laughs> right, right. If the guy has the 250K, then if you have more chips than him, you're, you're going all in with seven deuce offsuit against his aces. Like you you, you've, uh, you do it with ace-king against his aces. It's just that's uh, the... the, the uh, the payoff for doing that is so huge that, uh, so yeah, you don't know. That's why it's called mystery bounty. I don't know how they're going to do it, but. 
oh, it's all right. The bounties are you just knock somebody. Oh, so that's interesting, right? Yeah, so you knock somebody out, and and then later you find out if, uh, and maybe you'll find you can find out on the spot. I don't know, but I, I'm guessing when you go actually redeem them, they let you know. That's my guess. They didn't. I don't know the procedure. It's not that important. I do know that you don't know who are the bigger bounties until after they've been hit in some time. Uh, so that's that's the way this works, and. I will say this does add a little bit more of a fun element to it where like take the three bounties I got with the one time I played the bounty event there, there was no excitement other than, Oh cool. Another 500 and Oh cool. I got some more chips. Now it can be, wow. I wonder if I'm the one with the 250,000. Like you, you will, everybody will wonder that everybody except for one will be disappointed with that. But, uh, or the semi disappointed, I guess you get to 2,500, you'll be happy too. But, uh, it's it's one of these things where it adds a little bit of, of fun and suspense to it, but at the same time, it, it's adding some top-heavy variants, which can be annoying. So depends what you're playing for. They're definitely aiming this more at the recreational player who wants to have a chance at winning 250K without winning the first few spots in the tournament. So this is a that's why I called it a carnival game type thing. Where it's, This is just something where, through complete dumb luck, you can win 250,000, which you can't do. Like, a, you, you you really could seed a monkey, and a monkey might be able to win the 250K. Like, you could just... Like, if you sat a monkey and just told the monkey to go all in every hand, uh, the monkey could win the 250K. So, anytime you can seed a monkey at a poker table and the monkey can win money, you've got a problem. That's, that's a great rule of thumb. That's uh, Druff's rule of monkey thumb. That... If a monkey can win, then there's something wrong with the scheme you've come up with. The last monkey situation I talked about was the $1,000 PLO event with the way the rebuys were that you could train a monkey to just fold every hand and he could cash in the 1K PLO. Because someone tried that, not with a monkey, but they just blindly folded every hand and and barely cashed. So again, if, if a monkey can cash, if a monkey can win money, then there's something wrong with your poker tournament. So I don't love this, but it's not terrible. At least it adds an element of fun. And maybe if it brings some more recreational players out there than whatever, your next question may be, am I going to play it? Answer, I don't know. I'm not opposed to playing it, but I'm not going to go out of my way to play it. So if it, if it happens to fit in the schedule, I may actually play it despite uh, my criticism of it. I have played events I've criticized. I, I criticized the Big 50, and I played it, and I was one of the top chip leaders after day one, and I cashed pretty deep. I criticized the 888 event, the eight-handed 888 event that uh, the first year they had that. I, I called it a, a poor man's 1K event. I mocked it, then I played it anyway, and I cashed the first time I tried it. So maybe by mocking this, if I try this, I will also... Uh, Cash the first time. I actually have an excellent record at the World Series in uh, new events, events that are running for the first time ever, that uh, if I go play them, I have an excellent record with cashing these. There's so many different like new gimmick events they've added. When I say gimmick, I don't even mean in a bad way. There's like some, something different about the event that they're introducing in a certain year. And I play it, and just it seems like almost every time I cash. So maybe for that reason alone, I should play this. If it fits into the schedule, I will. Uh, now I'm forgetting what date it is. <laughs> uh, what date is this mystery? June 28th. You know what? I'll probably be there June 28th. 
I will probably be there June 28th. I have a feeling June 28th is around the time the 1500 mixed Omaha and the 1500 PLO8 will take place. So if I am not in either of those or something else interfering that I prefer over this, I will play it. That's what I will do. I'll have to wait till the full schedule comes out, but uh, if it happens that this fits in, and for this to fit in, my, my criteria for fitting in, by the way, is that if I make day two, I won't have to skip anything that I want to play. That's what I do. Like, I have certain events I definitely want to play, and then I make sure that I don't play any other events that if I make day two, I have to miss it. Day three is a different story. If I make day three, I say, hey, I'm happy enough with day three where I'll miss anything. But day two isn't that exciting. Day two you can even make without caching. So I, I'm not going to miss something I really want to play because I make a day two. But that's that's how I schedule it. So, like, if there's... If, for example, if on June 29th the 1500 PLO8 is going, I'm not playing this. But if, if say, the there's nothing going on June 29th that I really care about or June 28th, then yes, I'll play this. I will let you guys know. Probably next week or the week after, I will have a full schedule to announce to you guys. And uh, there's not that much left to fill in here, to be honest. The, the main thing they haven't filled in yet are the limit games and the mixed games, stuff like that. They have like the 10K variants up, but like we don't know when the 1500 limit is, the f- limit hold'em. We don't know the 1500 horse. We all those type of events we don't know when they are yet. Taking a look at our texts we've received from the 301. Hey, Jeff, I watched Progress, referring to Prahlad Friedman, what he calls himself, on a podcast called No Jumper. His attempted black accent is awful. He was sitting there with a huge joint the whole interview, trying to help increase his street cred. I assume. Yeah, that's another thing he does. This is He's one of these guys who smokes pot and tries to like make it clear he smokes pot so you think he's cool. This isn't just someone who enjoys smoking pot. This is someone who enjoys smoking pot, and he wants you to know that he smokes pot and makes it a big part of his life, and therefore he's cool. And people are supposed to stop doing that once they're out of high school. From the 440... Okay, see, I got something wrong. This is why it's good we have attorneys listening to the show. Druff Prohack Vice has to do with Scheinberg's out-of-state attorney being able to appear in New York court. Uh-huh. See, I did not know that. So this probably is about Scheinberg. It probably wasn't about Svetkov. All right. I didn't even know this 440 person's an attorney, but thank you. We have a lot of attorneys listening to this show. Uh, from the... That's it. There's a personal message I'm not going to read. And that's all we've got. 775-372-8355 if you want to text me during the show. Or if you're listening to the archives, do it after the show. And I will respond to you. I hate to tell you guys who are fans of the long shows, we're not going to have a long show tonight. We're, we're getting close to the end. We, we have two topics left, and, and neither is going to be all that long. So I, I'm sorry. This is just not going to be a long one. This is going to be probably four hours... No, a little more than four hours, but not that much more than four hours. Which, most shows would be very long. This one is kind of short. I want to give an update about this guy who tweeted about the toothbrush that he couldn't buy for a penny, where he tweeted out the picture of the manager named Tori at Target, who would not sell him the toothbrush for one cent. And he claimed he called the police about it, and the police came down, and they're going to go to court with him and testify on his behalf, and... The guy looked like such a petty asshole here. And boy, the response was overwhelmingly negative, And this thing went viral. And uh, a lot of people were chiming in on it. 
and even celebrities were responding. This guy got all kinds of attention over this. All of it negative. Just, just tons of bashing of this guy. Some people found that he wasn't even telling the truth. Like, for example, he claimed he couldn't afford to go to the dentist. And uh, that's why he wanted to buy this toothbrush for one cent. But then it was found that uh, he had tweeted about being in a dental waiting room in 2018. He claimed he hadn't been to the dentist in three years. That was one of various inconsistencies that were found. But I will say I'm usually very, very good at determining when there's a hoax on the Internet. I've seen a lot of things that seem on the surface to be true on the Internet. And I go, nope, that's a hoax. People go, no, 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 it could be. I go, no, 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 it's a hoax. Trust me. And I have people doubting me, and I have people saying, no, it could be, or no, this, come on, this could be real, or no, I think it's real. And I go, no, it's a hoax for this reason. And I'm usually really good at just instantly spotting, this is a hoax, this is BS, this is set up, this is not the way it appears to be. This is being tailored for social media. This is being made up. I, like, I, and I, I piss people off because there's some things people think are just so funny or so amusing or so crazy. And I go, no, it's, it's a hoax. No, it's made up. No, this was done on purpose. And people get so mad because they think they're sharing something that's just really interesting. And then they, they feel like chumps. And then they're kind of like emotionally invested in the whole thing. And they, they don't want to admit that they were fooled. And I have these arguments with people on Facebook. And some people I stopped doing it because I could tell I'm hurting their feelings. Like they're all hurting their feelings. They're feeling like I'm making them look stupid. And these are nice people otherwise. I don't want to make them feel bad. So some of these people, I just stopped saying it. Some people can take it. Some people can't. But uh, like like something that's usually a hoax is where you see some funny or witty text conversation between two people or Facebook conversation between two people. And the names and phone numbers are always blacked out. You can't see, you can just see the conversation that it's two people talking and someone has a really witty retort and ha ha ha. It's so funny. Oh, it really burned them there. No, these are always made up. These are always made up. Maybe a tiny percentage of them are real. They're almost always made up. But, uh, this one got by me. I see. I'm not afraid to admit I was fooled. I'm not afraid to admit that a hoax got me. Barely happens, but I'm not afraid to admit it. And I must admit it here. A hoax got me. In my defense, it got just about everybody. There's only a very small percentage of people who saw this for what it was, and I congratulate them. I think the reason I was fooled by it is because I have seen people behaving this way before who go to Twitter and they think they're making a complaint that everyone's going to get behind them and they don't realize how foolish they look. And I think it's partially because of that and partially because I've been on the other side of this where I've made a a very legitimate consumer complaint and I have a lot of boneheads telling me I'm wrong, even though I know 100% I'm in the right. And everyone's attacking this guy and I'm I'm thinking like this guy thinks the way I think sometimes, like, oh, no, they're just not seeing it the right way. But in reality, he's being absurd. So I'm thinking this guy was just like a, a, a super extreme version of me doing crazy things I would never do and thinking because he sees a, a label saying one cent that somehow they have to sell it to him for one cent and he thinks he's going to shame Target over this and shame – also because he posted the picture of the Target manager. And there, you know, he did post a picture of a real Target employee. I thought uh, – this probably is real. Like he didn't just say, "Oh, this happened to Target." He posted a picture of the toothbrush and the the one cent label, and the uh, the picture of the manager who denied him. And it looked real. It was very well done. It was also pointed out that the toothbrush wasn't even being sold for one cent, 
there was like a, a weird misle- misleading label on the sample that said like one cent, which may just be like a default label they put on samples they're not actually selling. It wasn't on the product itself. It was on the sample, which they shouldn't have up there. It, it, it just confuses people. But this was not even erroneously listed as one cent. It was just the sample said one cent on it, and that uh, it said 0.01, not even one cent. It said 0.01. 0.01 could mean anything. But uh, here's what I believe really happened, and I'll tell you why. This guy, David Levitt, who has like 216,000 followers, and I'd wondered who he was and how he had these this many followers, and I'll get to that in a second. But this guy, David Levitt, was walking around in Target and happened to see this weird thing with the one the, the 0.01 next to the display version of the Oral-B toothbrush, which I think normally retails for $90. And I'm sure he realized right away that it's just some weird code on the display thing and it's not really selling for a penny. But he probably had a brainstorm at that moment. He said, ha, I'm going to bring this up to the front and I'm going to ask them if they will sell this to me for a penny. And if they won't, even though I know they're being reasonable, I'm going to make a big asshole of myself on purpose and make a big argument over this, then take a picture of the manager who refuses this, and I'm going to go on Twitter and look like the biggest unreasonable asshole, and I'm going to embellish the story to look like an even bigger asshole, and everyone on Twitter is going to share this, and it's going to go viral, and everyone's going to hate me. I'm going to get so much attention. Now, why? I don't know. I don't know what he's gaining from this. But that's what it appears he did. I do not believe he called the police, though it's possible he did. It's possible he called the police and uh, told them this, and they just said, sorry, it's a civil matter, goodbye. It's very possible the police never came down there. I think it's either made up or he just did it to go through the motion so he could say he, he can say he did it. Obviously, he made up the thing where I, I haven't been to a dentist in three years. That's why I needed this toothbrush for one cent. I can't afford it. Uh, he said that on purpose to sound absurd. And he just... He made himself into a caricature of like the worst possible asshole consumer who feels entitled to merchandise for one penny because of either a mistake or something that just looks like a price that really isn't. And he tweeted this in a very like serious manner. He's writing absurd things, but he's tweeting this in a very serious manner. Like where he wrote, I didn't call 911, I made sure to call their non-emergency number. Like that, that was a great thing to write as part of this hoax to look convincing. Because it would have been more outrageous if he called 911. And there have been people who called 911 over crazy things. Like they don't get a, 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 the, like, I think some fast food place was out of chicken and someone called 911 over that. Like crazy things like that. There have been 911 calls that were that stupid. So he actually made sure you know that he didn't call 911. He called the non-emergency number over this, which of course is still absurd. Not as bad as calling 911. You're not, blocking people with emergencies from getting through, but but it's still absurd. You're, you're looking at it like, oh, this guy thinks he's being reasonable because he didn't call 911. He doesn't realize how stupid he's looking here and how petty he's looking and how unreasonable he is here. And he thinks he's shaming Target and shaming this manager. In reality, he's shaming himself. Well, here's a few things that have come out since. First of all, unrelated to this, well, related to this, but not having to do with him being a troll, this woman who works at Target, whose name is Tori, her picture was posted. And I, I still don't know if she willingly let him do this or if he just took a picture of her. But someone started a GoFundMe for her. And as with anything viral on the Internet, these GoFundMes raise tremendous money. Undeservedly, by the way. I'm not saying this Tori was a bad person or doesn't uh, 
or it's it's terrible she gets any money, but she doesn't deserve the type of money this is raised. Last I looked, it was thirty thousand, maybe be more than that. But uh, they they were raising money for quote target Tory to go on vacation. Now David Levitt did not do this. He remember he supposedly doesn't like target Tory. The person who started this is a completely separate person who goes by Carpe Donctum. And it's not – you may think the donk part's related to poker. It's not. This Carpe Donctum, I think the donk is referring to uh, donkeys like Democrats because this Carpe Donctum is a pro-Trump meme account that has existed for a while. I've seen retweets of things that Carpe Donctum has posted a number of times on my Twitter feed way before any of this happened. So Carpe Donctum is a separate person. I don't know his real identity, but it, this is a pro-Trump Republican who's always uh, posting a lot of uh, pro-Trump memes that people share. He's been doing this for quite some time. He's kind of a semi-known figure on Twitter. He started this GoFundMe for Target Tory, and since then, Target Tory has posted a, a new picture of herself holding up a sign saying thank you and looking better than she did in this picture he took of her where she looks kind of like confused. And she it's also been confirmed by GoFundMe that they have identified who she is and that they are going to directly send the money to her so you don't have to worry about Carpe Doctum stealing it. Because there was some concern. Nobody knows who this Carpe Doctum guy is. He's been around a while on social media, but what if he just runs off with the money? What if the temptation is too great and he just runs off with it? So GoFundMe has confirmed that they're not going to let him withdraw, that they're going to, when the whole thing's done they're going to take the money and directly send it to Tory themselves. So it's not going to be a scam. Tory will get the money you give on the GoFundMe. I don't encourage you to do it because she's she doesn't deserve 30000 for this thing. But uh, nevertheless, that, that's what she's getting, probably more than that by now. Uh, I, I think if you if you want to give away money like that, uh, give it to a good cause or give it to the Poker Fraud Alert free roll. That's also a good cause, but not, not to target Tory when she has 30000 already for being part of this whole thing. But uh, some people say, oh, this, this is a... A uh, secret plan, a uh, plot between uh, David Levitt and Target Tory to make her into the victim, and then this way she gets this money. Then David Levitt will get th- this fundraiser started under another account, and uh, people donate money to her, and they'll split it. I don't believe that's what's happening because I don't think David Levitt and Carpe Donctum are friends. David Levitt has it, – it seems like he's on the left from everything you can see looking at his Twitter account going back years. And Carpe Donctum is very much on the right. I just, I just don't think they know each other. And even if they do, it doesn't matter because uh, only Target Tory is going to get the money. Well, I guess if, if she's in cahoots with David Levitt, that uh, she could still split it with him. But I, I'm guessing no. I think the GoFundMe was completely an independent idea. But let's get back to David Levitt. Apparently, he's been trolling on Twitter and trying to say really outrageous things for quite some time. And this is just one of various things he's done. And that's important to keep in mind here because once you see someone has a history of being outrageous on Twitter for the sake of being outrageous, then you have to say, okay, this this wasn't just random. This wasn't just some guy being unreasonable. This is someone who's trying to get attention. This is someone who's trying to be an asshole. And yes, it, it probably is a hoax. So I had said... Like shortly after radio, I posted, if this is an elaborate troll job, I give him an A+. And I said that because as I thought about it more right after we were done the radio show, I go, shit, this may have been a hoax. Like I, I just started to think about it might be after I already gave this time on this show. So now I have to update it. Yeah, It's, a, it's up to 34000 by the way. I just looked at the GoFundMe. 
But I said, if this is a hoax, great job. He gets an A plus. Well, he does get an A plus because I'm, I think it's very likely to be a hoax. This guy has uh, a history of writing a lot of uh, offensive things on Twitter. He wrote at one point uh, about a shooting outside of uh, like an Ariana Grande concert. I think it was Ariana Grande. He wrote something like uh, uh, breaking news, uh, you know, shooting outside of Ariana Grande concert. Uh, I, I understand if I just watch Ariana Grande, I'd want to shoot people too. Too soon, he writes something like that. So he, there's a lot of uh, flack he took over that, and he, he's he's responded once to Anthony Bourdain, who's now lo- no longer with us, but responded to Anthony Bourdain and uh, about some other tragedy that occurred and uh, made some kind of offensive comment. And Anthony Bourdain actually responded back to him and said that uh, he's a steaming pile. And then when Anthony Bourdain died, then David mocked that too. And I think that's how he got his 216K followers was by being a complete dick and getting prominent people like Anthony Bourdain to respond to him. So he's been gaining followers. People people see want to see what he says next. I, it worked with me. I followed him because of this, because of this whole uh, Target thing. So that, that's that's what he's doing here. And uh, that's also why he, unlike people who normally accidentally go viral and look really bad and everyone hates them, they usually delete their Twitter or go private or go hide out. He was reveling in the whole thing. He he kept posting all these different uh, all these different tweets about playing Magic the Gathering. He's like a big Magic the Gathering player, but he's going to do his Twitch very soon in Magic the Gathering. He, he acts as if he's oblivious to all the hate he's getting, and every tweet he's writing, people just bash him about the target thing, and he knows what he's doing. He knows he's res- every tweet he makes is just going to be about the target thing, but he writes tweets as if he is past the whole target thing, as if he doesn't think about it anymore, and, and he's just like acting like he's going on with life, like nothing happened, so people get even angrier. Like, it would be more satisfying to people if he were still answering them at this point and fighting with them. Here he's not giving them the satisfaction. Here it seems like he's just moved on with life and is tweeting normally, and that's really pissing people off. Now, why is he doing this? I don't know. Probably just for attention, probably because the, the dude's weird. But he is getting a lot of different responses. He's getting responses in every one of his tweets where otherwise he'd probably be ignored. This is a good way to get people to pay attention to you. I was a little concerned that maybe, well, not concerned for him, but I think why doesn't he have the concern that he's going to piss off some psycho who's going to go find him and kill him or beat him up? Because he's trying to be as unlikable as possible. He's trying to be the biggest jerk, the biggest asshole that he can be. He's trying to get you mad as you read his Twitter. And he's got 210,000 followers now. So isn't he worried that some person's going to think they're doing a good deed by doing something bad to him? That's what I'd be afraid of. But apparently he's not. Not afraid of that. So I believe very, very likely this was a hoax that he got the idea walking through Target and Thought he's going to piss off the internet. A hoax being that he probably did bring up the toothbrush and try to buy it for one penny, but the, the whole thing was intentional to create drama on Twitter. And you really don't think the target lady's involved? 
No. Well, no, okay. Because I'll tell you, Jeff, if you're thinking, like, because also, like, the thing with the veteran and the gas who gave the last 20 bucks, that whole thing, I don't think we ever talked about that, do we? We did. A little bit. But, right. So, I mean, what was your first impression, though, Um, of that? I thought that... um I just thought whatever this is this like I didn't think it was a scam, but I I thought like whatever. Wh- why would people just like donate all this money? To, it, it seemed like right. Like, no, I know, but I'm just saying if somebody was looking at that, I mean they raised hundreds of thousands of dollars, and now I'm thinking, okay, fuck that. What could I do? I could see somebody coming up with something like what they did. And with the GoFundMe payoff at the end, it's just too much. Well, yeah, but if it wasn't for the Carpe Donctum thing, the only thing, if if somehow he knows Carpe Donctum, or maybe if he is Carpe Donctum, then that would make sense. Otherwise, this is this wasn't like some account came out of nowhere and said that started GoFundMe. This was a, a long established like Trump meme machine that it, that was I had seen many times on Twitter already. Who has jumped into this and I think jumped on the GoFundMe thing just to get more attention to himself. Himself, meaning the Carpe Domkin guy. I, I just think it's two totally different people. And I think that he didn't, I think he, and keep in mind his past trolling attempts also had nothing to do with money. He was just trying to get negative attention. So I hadn't seen a money aspect to any of the stuff in the past that he did. So I really think this is separate, especially because the, the Carpe Domkin account is somewhat known. If it was, a, if it was a random account, I would totally agree with you that this has got to be in cahoots. Now, what is po- more possible, though, is that he got this target Tory to agree to be part of it, because there is the matter of posting her picture. It's one thing to just say offensive things, maybe people who get shot outside a concert or making fun of a, a celebrity dying, but to actually post a person's picture, uh, that's a little bit too far, but you could say, well, look, you know, he was, uh, it's not illegal to post a person's picture who works at Target. And he knew by this story he's going to look like the asshole and she's going to look like the hero in the story. So it's not even like he's uh, shaming her in a meaningful way where people are going to dislike her. It's going to be the opposite. People are going to like her after reading the story. She's like the victim here. So maybe that's why he did it. So, But it's also possible maybe this is a friend of his and he said, hey, can you go along with this? This is going to be a funny joke. Like she really works at Target, but maybe this is a friend who works with, his, works with him at Target. And if that's true... And then they had no idea about the GoFundMe, and then this Carpe Doctum starts it, and then she has $34,000 or more rolling in. What does she do at that point if, if she was part of this whole thing? Just for attention, not for money. But if she was part of this whole thing for attention, and then money comes in because she's seen as a victim, what does she do? I know what she should do. At that point, she should say uh, she should refuse it, even if she doesn't give the reason. If she doesn't want to make everyone hate her, she can at least say, well, look, I, I appreciate it, but people deserve the, lot, mo, mo, the money a lot more than me. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm going to turn it down. I'm going to ask GoFundMe to refund everybody. And you can do that. But maybe the temptation will be too great. Maybe. So th- that would be the only way that I think he gets some of the money is if this is a friend of his and then this kind of was an unintended result and then she gets 34 k from it or more and she shifts some of it to him afterwards when she gets it. So I, obviously, this guy doesn't have that much of a conscience. If he, if he's trying to make people upset all the time on social media, including about making fun of people who died, this isn't a very good guy. He's not as horrible as he, he tries to portray himself to be, but he is still kind of an asshole. So I, I could see that guy easily being happy to take some of this money on false pretenses. And unlike the thing with the, the gas station bum who the, the, the whole story was contrived and they got charged with a crime over the whole thing, 
This one, because the GoFundMe was not their idea, even if it was a fictitious story, I, I believe just by receiving money that was sent to them that they didn't ask for, as long as the third party who asked for it is not involved, I don't believe they've committed a crime. So that that would be interesting to see if Targatory has anything to do with him. Five days ago, Targatory was identified as Tori Perotti. That's P-E-R-R-O-T-T-I. But they can't reach her, which is weird. Despite all the interest in this, she doesn't want to comment. She's either shy or, or there's something going on here. So maybe she is a friend of his and this was an unintended consequence. This David Levitt is not responding to anyone on this either. I don't know. I think there's still a little bit more to this that we don't know. I really wonder if this Tori Parati could be linked to him. Well, let's get to our final topic. This is about tipping. No reason I'm bringing this up now other than just I'm bringing this up now. I brought it up on the forum already, but I wanted to discuss this on the radio show too because it was just bothering me the other day. It's about American tipping culture. It's not about tipping any one particular employee or profession. It's about the whole American tipping culture. Now, first you need to understand that the tipping culture we have in the U.S. is different than most of the world, where tipping either doesn't exist or is much reduced and not expected. For example, in Europe, they don't tip very much, and it's rarely expected or automatic. It's one of these things where you don't have to give a tip, and no one's going to be mad if you don't give a tip, but uh, if, if you want to leave a little extra for something extra that was done for you, cool. And that's the way I think it should be, by the way. But in the U.S., it's not like that. In the U.S., you're, you're seen as a complete jerk if you don't leave a tip in situations where a tip is called for. So I'm going to tell you why I have a problem with American tipping culture. And the, the first thing you might think, I, I know what's probably on your mind about why I don't want to be involved in the American tipping culture. I am because I, I live in the U.S. and you have to be involved unless you want to be uh, a social pariah. But there's a reason you probably think that I don't want to be leaving tips. Can you think of that reason? Can you think of a reason why I might rather have the money in my pocket rather than leaving it as a tip to people? Or why I may not want to leave money I don't think is deserved by service employees who deal with me. Can you think of that reason? Well, you're wrong. It's not that. I actually wouldn't mind if uh, tipping culture were eliminated, but they were to raise prices to make up for that to where, and then pay the employees better to where everything comes out the same, except I'm just not actually tipping. To where I pay the same after tip and to where the employees make the same overall. I don't mean each individual employee, and I'll get to that soon. But I'm not looking to save money here. I just think it's arbitrary and unfair and stupid. So first of all, tipping culture in America is full of contradictions, full of arbitrary standards. Supposedly we're tipping for service. If someone serves us something or does some kind of service for us, then we tip them. And uh, it's also to help low-paid employees, sometimes minimum wage employees, to make a living because otherwise, without the supplement from tips, they just don't make enough money to get by. But a closer look shows that this is arbitrary, random, 
and actually kind of weird. So let's look at who you do tip. You tip the valet and the bellman at a hotel. But what about the front desk employee who checks you in? Unless they do a big favor for you, like they give you a much better room or something you're asking for that's out of the ordinary, you don't tip them. You just take your room and walk away. You also don't tip the janitor sweeping up around there, do you? So why the valet and the bellman? When you're in the casino, you tip the blackjack dealer, you tip the cocktail waitress, but you don't tip the guy cleaning the public bathroom you just used in the same casino, do you? At a restaurant, you tip the server 18% or more. And yes, the server is expected to give some of that to some of the non-tipped employees like the busboys and the dishwashing crew and the hostess, but they don't get that much of it. Most of it does go to the server. And in many cases, the assistant chefs end up making far less money than the servers. So you, you have the executive chef and then you have all the other assistant chefs. Sometimes the executive chef's not even there. It's just the assistant chefs making the meal. They make very little money. You may not know this, but those assistant chefs make very little money. So the guys making the food who went to school for it and everything, not college, but they went to culinary school, they, they actually have a more skilled profession than the servers. They make less than the servers in many cases. Now, tipping at restaurants, let's look at how much you tip. It's in relation to the cost of the meal, even though it's just as difficult to serve a cheap meal as it is an expensive meal. Yet, servers at expensive restaurants will sometimes make up to 20 times more in tips than the servers at cheap restaurants. Now, how is that fair? Yes, you have to be a little friendlier and do a little bit of a better job. There's a little bit of a higher standard, but why are the servers making so much more just because the meal's more expensive? How is that fair? Or is it fair that they get tipped more because you've ordered something more expensive on the menu that's the exact same amount of effort for them to serve you? Seems kind of arbitrary, doesn't it? Now, what about the takeout area in restaurants? They, the people have to box that up, and there's, there's effort in preparing takeout food for you. You order it with these people. They prepare the takeout food. They wrap it up. They put it in bags. They give you the condiments. It's not quite as hard as serving out a full meal, but these people often get zero tips from people who take out, and when they do get tips, they tend to only be a few dollars. They don't make very much in tips. But the servers, they get 18% or more. Now, why is that? How does that make any sense? What about uh, you go to the airport on one of the, one of those shuttles, whether it's a, a shuttle that uh, drives you from your house or, or you park in an off-site lot and you take a shuttle to the actual airport. You have bags. And the guys who help, help you with your bags on and off the bus, uh, you're expected to tip them. But what about when you go check in and the airline staff takes your bag and weighs it and then puts it on the belt. In both cases, they're lifting up your bag and, and moving it somewhere else. How come only the driver of the shuttle gets tipped? You don't tip the airline check-in staff, do you? What about cruise ships, where you're forced to give mandatory what they call gratuities that are automatically charged to your stateroom for each day on the ship? Well, those gratuities are actually pocketed by the cruise line and used to pay wages. I'll get to that again shortly. What about a hand pay at a casino when you hit a jackpot of $1,200 or more? By federal law, the machine has to lock up and they have to pay you by hand and then issue a text form to you. 
How come when a hand pay occurs, which you didn't choose, it's not like you're like, oh, I want to be paid by hand. No, uh, you Most people don't want a hand pay. Most people would rather just the machine just add credits and you cash out at the end, but you have to do the hand pay by federal law. How come those who are required to fire to to follow the federal law and give you these tax forms and give you the hand pay, they expect a tip, and if you don't give them a tip, they get kind of pissed. But yet you don't typically tip the cashier normally or anybody else doing administrative paperwork for you at the casino. If you go on and need some tax papers and you go to the office that does that, they print them for you. Are they gonna are you gonna tip anybody in there? No. So how come only the hand pays? if not the cashier or other people doing paperwork for you there. Hmm. Hotel maids, they are literally doing a crappy job for a very low pay. How often do they, how often do they get tipped? Yeah, some people leave them tips, but not that often. A lot of rooms leave them nothing. A lot of people leave the, the maid absolutely nothing. I tip the maid, by the way. I, I, uh, I usually don't have the maid come in for my entire stay, unless it's a really long stay, and then at the end I leave them money because the the room is, is dirty because they haven't come in the whole time. <laughs> but uh, most people don't leave tips, and if they, they get tips, it's not very much. A few dollars, five dollars, ten dollars, and it's it's irregular. How come hotel maids, they're doing a big service for you. How, how come they're not getting tipped very often, yet so many other employees in the same hotel casino get tipped? Hmm. Blackjack dealers expect tips in proportion to the amount wagered. Even if the player is losing overall, if they happen to hit a big hand, even if they're getting clobbered in the session, if they don't leave a tip, they're a jerk. And the games, of course, are negative expectation as well. Some of these dealers, especially uh, at high-end strip casinos, make near 100 k per year just for dealing cards, and yet you're still expected to tip them well. So these aren't struggling employees who are barely getting by. These are some people who are making almost 100k a year, and and you're still expected to tip them. Hmm. Why is that? You're expected to leave a tip to the person cutting your hair, even if they work for themselves or set their own price. <laughs> you make an appointment with someone to cut your hair, they tell you the price. You're expected to leave them extra afterwards. Why? You're expected to tip drivers like taxi cabs and Uber, even if they work for themselves. You are not expected to tip a repairman who comes to your house and fixes something, whether or not he works for himself. Why is that? That's a service, right? Why are you just paying the repairman exactly what he charges? Hmm. You're not expected to tip a fast food employee. This is a big one. Think about this one. They tend to work for minimum wage. They're doing a service job, and yet you usually don't tip them. Why is that if you're looking to help these minimum wage people who are barely getting by? especially in service positions, why are you not tipping the lowest paid of the service people you deal with, the fast food employees? Why? I'll tell you why, because that's not customary. By our arbitrary rules in the U.S., you don't tip fast food employees. You can, but almost nobody does. Isn't that interesting? And let's say there's a mandatory auto tip in place. Like if you have a large party, you have to pay 18% tip uh, automatically. Or a poker tournament that has an auto tip taken out. Let's say you want to add to that. Let's say you want to make it 20% instead of 18%. And you add 2% on there. Doesn't it feel weird to just leave another 2% on there? Not only does it feel weird, 
But often those receiving the tip will find it insulting that you're only adding another 2%. Yet for some reason, it's okay to leave 0%. So if you say, hey, I've already auto-tipped, I'm not leaving anything extra, then the person receiving the tip is like, oh, yeah, 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 it's an auto-tip, whatever. That's how it works. But if you leave like 1% or 2% extra, it's supposed to be like insulting they don't, and they don't want it. In fact, there was a controversy last decade, or actually I guess two decades ago now, it was during the 2020s, in, in like 2006 or so. There was a controversy on 2 plus 2 because some kid who won a million dollars in a poker tournament left $1,000 extra for the dealers on top of the auto tip, and some dealers came out and shamed him for, for leaving uh, a, a 0.1% tip. And I defended the guy. I'm like, no, 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 this is above the auto tip. Most people leave zero. He's actually doing something a little extra. And, and like very few people thought that way. Everyone else told this kid what an asshole he was, and it actually drove him out of poker. The, the kid actually left the poker community after this because he was so uh, humiliated by this. It was like a kid who's like 22 years old or something. I could go on and on with these things. So why are people tipping then? It, could, it couldn't be because they're trying to help people who are poor and need the money because you're not tipping fast food employees. You're not tipping the guy uh, who's cleaning the, the toilets in the public bathroom at the casino. You, you walk right by him, mopping the floor, cleaning the toilet, and you just you, you piss in the urinal, wash your hands, and you're on your way. You don't tip those guys. But you see the dealer, oh, my God, I, uh, I've, I've got to tip him $5. I've got to tip him $10. I've got to tip him $25 on this hand because I did well. Why? Well, because the dealer doesn't make much money. Well, he does, actually. Well, I'm going to tip him anyway. I think uh, that's what you're supposed to do. Like, okay, who needs it more? That that blackjack dealer who's making almost 100 k a year or, or the guy who's, who's uh, making uh, – probably just barely above minimum wage who's, who's mopping the floor. I, by the way, Jeff, a lot of times I do slip the, the mopper a five spot. That's good. I encourage all the listeners to do it too. That That is yeah. good. That is good. So Public service announcement. Yes. So, uh, and, and by the way, this segment is not to shame people into doing this. So if you want to do that, that's nice, and these people need the money. But uh, but I'm, I'm trying to show you how arbitrary it is. So, so why do people do it? Like, if you're not Trader Ruski who also tips the guy who's mopping the floor, uh if you're like the normal American tipper who just tips in the way I discussed in this uh, segment, then why are you tipping? Think about it. Why, why are you tipping then? It, it couldn't be because you're you're trying to help employees who, who serve you who are poor. It couldn't be that you just want to do it for all service employees. They just named several service employees you don't tip, including fast food ones. So, so why is it? Why are you tipping? Well, unfortunately, the reason is something you won't like. It's probably because you want to feel good. Either you want to feel good or you feel societal pressure to do so. But the latter is actually okay. The latter is a, you can't buck society. If the, if this is the way it is and, and you going against it will make you look like a jerk and make people hate you, it makes sense why you do it. So I'm not criticizing that. But if you're not doing it just because you, like if you feel it's, it's stupid, but you're doing it because you feel you have to, that's one thing. But if you're doing it and you actually think you're justified to do it, you think what you're doing is correct, there's a good chance you're doing this to feel good about yourself and not actually really helping you may think you're helping but you're not you're not you're not interested in putting the effort into really helping people you're just doing what is customary and patting yourself on the back for it and convincing yourself that this is the right thing to do and that's uh that ties into the gofundme thing we were just talking about that whenever these viral things happen you see this picture of target tory on the on twitter and this this jerk is criticizing her for just doing her job and you want to give her money why because she happens to be in the news and it feels good to give her money does this targetory need more money after 34000 has been raised for her? No. Do you do it? Well, you may not, but a lot of people do it because it makes them feel good. 
not because Tory really needs the money or deserves more than 34000 for this whole thing. Especially, you could say maybe she deserves money from, from this guy for, for shaming her, trying to shame her, bringing her into this, but not from the public. So uh, a lot of this is done by people subconsciously. They don't think, oh, I'm going to do this to feel like a good person. Like They just subconsciously do it to feel good. And that's why if you bring up the tip subject, you get a lot of angry people who get sanctimonious about this and who will sometimes brag to one-up each other. So you'll have someone say, you know, I always leave 20% at restaurants. Then someone's like, oh, yeah, you 20% is nothing. I, I always leave 25% minimum, and I'll leave 35% if the service is good. And someone else says, oh, yeah, well, so what? I'll leave 20% if the service is bad. 30% normally and 40 if it's good. What about that? Huh? I'm the, I'm the most generous person here. So people, I've, I've heard these conversations before where people are really tr- like showing off how much they tip because it makes them a great person. And then if you would ask these people, well, last time you went to fast food, how much did you give those employees? Why, why are you giving 40% to the, the prime steakhouse server who's making a lot of money and, and, and zero to the fast food guy? If, you, if you're just trying to help, if you're just trying to, to do what's right, why are you giving 40% to the prime steakhouse server? They don't need it. They're doing fine. They're doing great for someone who who's working an unskilled job. But if you dare speak out against tipping culture, then people will chide you for not caring about people making minimum wage or being a cheap, selfish asshole. And unfortunately, if you ask about, well, what about how it's arbitrary and you cite examples like what I just cited, you'll get back, well, you can tip those people too. Do, do that too. You know what's stopping you, or you'll get, well, that's just the way it is. That's the way life is. Sorry. But here's the way it really should be, and this is the way it is in Europe. Here's the way it should be, and that is the, the problem is tipping. the tipping culture has shifted the burden of pay in many professions from the employers to the customers, and that leaves the customers in an awkward position to figure out exactly how much they're supposed to leave. And if you think about it, on a very basic level, ignoring the societal pressures and, and what's customary, at a very basic level, usually there's no reason to be tipping. Maybe tipping someone for doing you some unusual favor. You go to a hotel, you go, hey, do, do you have any better rooms than what you have for me? You know, I'll, I'll be nice and upgrade you to a suite. Okay, then you tip the, the person for being nice and giving you a suite, which you didn't pay for. Okay, fine. But I'm not talking about things like that. I'm talking about just where a tip is expected, where it's if you don't leave one, when you get standard service, that you're a jerk. That's that's the problem. That shouldn't be happening. Now, here's what really should be happening. And and one person can't change this. Now, I'm not telling you you should go on a crusade and not tip. I'm just saying the way it should be. And I, and I hope one day maybe it'll change. But servers should be paid a fair wage uh, of any type. Restaurant servers, any kind of person in a service profession where they're expected to make some of their wages from tips. They should do away with the tips and just pay those people what they're really worth. And some will make more and some will make less. Let me give you an example. The Denny's waitress is going to make more because the Denny's waitress doesn't make that much in tips because the meals are cheap there. The prime steakhouse waitress is going to make less because they're way overpaid. I feel the servers at the very cheap restaurants are underpaid and the servers at the expensive restaurants are way overpaid. Not just overpaid, but way overpaid. How dare I say someone's overpaid? No, I can say that because they're being paid a lot more than their skill or the difficulty of job should be getting them. 
it's one thing if you're paying someone because uh, they're doing a job that's tough or they're doing a job that required a lot of education or training or something that requires some sort of talent. But just, just serving food at an expensive restaurant and just uh, being reasonably polite and, and competent, that doesn't require very much training, doesn't require any education, and uh, and they make a lot more money than they should. And when I say they should, because there's people doing much harder jobs that they have to train a lot more for and sometimes pay for expensive schooling to make less money than doing that, than working at a prime steakhouse as a server. So so I have uh, I feel those people are very much overpaid. There are, there's other servers that are underpaid because they're, they're working at a cheap restaurant. This would equalize this a lot. I'm not saying every server has to be paid the same thing, but there should be pay that's uh, a little higher for the ones working at cheap restaurants and and the ones and, and lower for the ones who work in expensive restaurants. The expensive restaurant servers can still make more because there's a higher standard expected to them, but not 20 times more, not 10 times more. They don't deserve 20 or 10 times more. They just don't. And yes, the prices of the base food will go up, but then you won't be expected to leave a tip. So you'll save 18, 20% on the bill. So that that'll even it all out. The prices will look more expensive on the menu, but the money out of your pocket will be the same thing. You may say, well, if it's the same thing, who cares? Well, I care because the whole thing's stupid. And it, it shouldn't be this way. And it really shouldn't be up to the customer to be providing the pay to employees for just doing their job. And if tipping really was about helping then there'd be a lot more handouts to people who mop the floor and people who work fast food and less generous tips to those who work at prime steakhouses or high-end blackjack tables in trip hotels. But there's not because people want to feel good. Now, here's something I noticed that was really interesting related to tipping that some of you may have experienced and some of you may not have experienced. I mentioned the cruise line situation. Now, this is a bit different. The cruise line situation, some years ago, all the cruise lines started to institute a mandatory auto tip where at the end of the cruise, you would be charged a certain amount per day per person that would be on your stateroom and you'd pay it on your your credit card or in cash, whatever. But it would be at the end of the cruise. You wouldn't be paying this before the cruise starts, you wouldn't be paying this to book the cruise. This is a charge after the fact that you're also expected to pay. There were some ways to opt out of it. They've gotten more difficult with that. You can still do it, but it's gotten more and more and more difficult to do. But this was marketed as a gratuity. Well, is it? Answer, no. What's really going on is this has become a resort fee. It's not called a resort fee, but it's really a resort fee. What they're really doing is they are using this to make the base price of the cruise look cheaper. And they are using this to pay employees. So this is what they did. There is a minimum wage on cruise ships, even though they're in international waters, even though the ships are usually not flagged with an American flag, they're usually registered in somewhere like the Bahamas. But there is international law And there is what's known as the maritime minimum wage, where any employee on on these ships, there's been an international agreement that they will get a minimum amount of pay. It's it's not very high because they're living on the ships. They can't pay them per hour. They'd be paid a fortune. And these are third world employees mainly 
who, compared to the, what they'd make in their home country, they're doing very well making these low wages, plus they get room and board there. So what these cruise ship employees do, they don't make that much, but they have just about zero expenses on the ship because everything's taken care of, and they mail the money home, and they're actually considered to be doing pretty well. Like These are very coveted jobs in third world countries because the money that they send home goes very far, and while they're making the money, all their expenses are covered. So getting back to the maritime minimum wage, as I said, there is a uh, standard minimum wage that they must pay all these cruise ship employees, and all the cruise lines adhere to that. But there is a trick in the maritime minimum wage, that any tips the employees receive count towards the minimum wage. And in fact, if the employees get tips that equal or exceed the maritime minimum wage, then the cruise ship, the cruise line, actually has a right to uh, legally pay them. Yes, you guessed it. Zero point zero. Yes, they can actually pay their employees zero base pay if the tips make up for it. Now, they don't, they don't pay them zero base pay, but they pay them far, far less than maritime minimum wage. Far less. And then they make it up with the tips. Now, aren't they screwing these employees compared to the old method where the employees used to be directly tipped by people on the cruise? No, because they came to an agreement. This is what happened. Is they said to all the employees, look, some of you are making more than others just because some of you happen to interface with the cruise ship customers a lot, like the room steward, and others like who are working behind the scenes, no one ever sees them and they never get tipped, so it's not fair to them. So what we're going to do for all of you is we're going to make all this equal. Everybody's going to get the same thing who works in the same type of same class of job. And we're going to do an auto tip thing. And uh, your base pay is going to be less than minimum wage. But from the auto tip we're charging, on average, you're all going to make the same as you were before after tips, except now you're barely going to get tipped. And, uh, and, and when we add up what we're collecting from these, quote, gratuities, it's going to exceed the maritime minimum wage. And it'll be about what you were making before. So your take home is going to be about the same. Though if you were a room steward, it's probably going to go down a little bit. If you were someone working behind the scenes, it's going to go up a little bit. But uh, overall, you're all going to break out even here. And every so often, we're going to keep raising the uh, the the gratuities. And, and some of it will go to you and some of it's going to go to us. And that's, that's what they've been doing. So most of these, quote, gratuities are going to the cruise ship's pockets and being used to pay wages. That's what's happening. Most of it, they're, they're just banking. If you opt out of these gratuities, it does not come out of the staff pay. It comes out of the cruise line. So the staff gets paid the identical thing if you opt out of it. They've, they've tried to make people believe that's not true, but it's true. If you opt out of the, it's become a pain in the ass to do so. But uh, if, if you do so, then the cruise line just makes less. Well, I found this out and I, posted to a cruise forum about this. And keep in mind, this is all cruise lines. This is not just uh, one in particular. So I I posted this to uh, a cruise forum. And boy, were people upset. Boy, were they mad to see what I wrote. No, they were not mad that the cruise line was tricking them and misleading them. They were mad at me. They were mad at me for posting such untruths, for posting such incorrect information 
And I said, no, 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 you may think that. But here, let me show you the legal language that they put that allows them to do this. Let me show you the description they give of what happens to these, quote, gratuities. And if you read very carefully, you'll see it does not go to employees. Let me explain other logic, which would show that what I'm telling you is true, that there's no other way to explain it. I'm not going to go into all this here, but uh, I, I laid out a very, very convincing case that this is what's happening with evidence and everything. People didn't want to believe me. People were getting mad. People were saying, I'm using this as an excuse to opt out of tips because I'm a cheapskate. And that this is a great system that gets everybody paid, including those in the back, that the, that now everybody gets tipped. Like, no, actually, nobody's getting tipped. You're just What you're doing is these mandatory gratuities are being used so the base fare looks cheaper. And so the, and the cruise line just pockets it all. They're using this to pay their employees. So they don't have to pay anybody minimum wage. They just pay them a very, very low wage, way below minimum wage, and then use your, quote, tips to make up the difference. That's what they're doing. People hated that. They hated I was saying it. They didn't hate the fact that it was going on. They would not believe me. They did not want to believe me. Well, why? Why Why did they not want to believe me, even when I laid out the evidence, even when I made it clear this is what was happening. Even when I said, well, what about this? What about that? And they couldn't explain the stuff that I was bringing to their attention. They couldn't explain how this was happening or why this was happening or why why does this document say this or that. Explain that to me, I'd say. And they couldn't. No, well, we just know. We just know it's going to them. We know, we know these are tips. Why? Well, they, we just know it is. That, that's the system they have in place. It's very fair. It's it's uh, it's making everybody whole. It's ma- it's fair to everybody. I, I heard from someone else who works on a cruise. That's not you're, you're wrong. They tell me. Who? I, it doesn't matter who. I just I heard it. Nobody would believe me. I had a few people who believed me. Most people didn't believe me. And uh, they weren't just like nicely saying, "Oh, you know, I think you're wrong." They got very emotional, very angry. Why? If I'm right, which I am. Guess what this means? For all these years, all these dedicated cruisers who've taken so many cruises haven't been tipping. All these people who thought that their auto tip was taking care of the tips and that they've been taking care of these low-paid third-world employees on their cruises, who they kind of feel bad for but say, hey, well, at least I'm tipping them through the auto tip. I just shattered their reality, and they've learned that they've been cruising for many years now without tipping anyone. And that gets people very, very mad and very, very uncomfortable because they felt they were good people. When they didn't tip anybody on the ship, they thought, well, it's because I'm tipping already. And now they feel terrible, even if it's not their fault, even if it's because the cruise line tricked them. They still feel terrible because they can no longer claim the moral high ground of being a tipper. They've been cruising without tipping. My Lord. So people don't want to believe it. They want to believe they're good people who've been doing the right thing with their tips. Then there were some people who said, you know what? I believe this guy, referring to me. What I'm going to do is I'm going to opt out of these auto gratuities, which just go into the cruise line's pocket. I'm just going to tip people I see that 
that helped me around the ship. So I'm going to tip my room steward in cash. I'm going to tip my uh, ser- the servers of the restaurants in cash. I'm going to tip other employees I see that do anything for me in cash. I'm going to start giving real tips. Screw this. These people got clobbered. Clobbered. You don't care about the people behind the scenes. What about the people washing the dishes and washing the sheets and uh, and doing maintenance of the ship? What about them? You're not tipping any of them. You're just screwing them by taking off the auto tip. Then you're making them get less because that comes out of their pay too. And and you're giving extra money to just the steward and others who are customer-facing. How dare you? And I say no. Again, when you opt out, it doesn't come out of the employee pay. It comes out of the cruise line's profits. Nobody wanted to hear it. They yelled and screamed, online version of yelling and screaming, at those who said they're going to opt out. I found it was a very interesting exchange, a very interesting social experiment that showed that even when I could pretty much prove it that this was happening, people didn't want to believe it because it destroyed the satisfaction they got that they, when they believed they were tipping. And that's very important for this discussion because people tip for personal satisfaction that they're being a good person, not because they're really helping anybody. There's a term called slacktivism. Slacktivism means doing something because it feels good and you think you're helping on the surface without having to expend much effort to actually help or even research that what you're doing is helping at all. And many people have been accused, especially in these uh, days of social media, of slacktivism, where you'll retweet something that's the cause of the day. Is that really helping anybody? No. If a million people have already retweeted, is it helping? Especially not. But it feels good, doesn't it? If it's a cause you care about, you retweet it. It has a million retweets already, but you retweet one, you've done your good deed for the day. Good job. I'm not saying you can't retweet things you, you agree with, but I'm just saying you, you can't pat yourself on the back for it either. Um, another example of slacktivism, this isn't about tipping at all, but we're kind of on the tangent here. There was a, a protest in South Dakota, I think it was two years ago, about, uh, about an oil pipeline on Native American land, and there were protesters there, and... Uh, a viral uh, message went around social media saying, and this was not true, it turned out, but it sounded like it might be true, that the police in the area were scanning Facebook check-ins to the protest so they could figure out who's there and so they know who to go after. That you're not anonymous protesters because you're checking into Facebook, that you're at the protest, and now the police know who is there and who's been protesting. And the police are planning to use this against people. And in fact, search for those who've been checking in. So the, and this wasn't really happening, by the way. Someone just made this up. But it was kind of believable. Maybe it's happening. I mean, it was kind of pl- clever if the police were doing that. But uh, it was suggested by this viral message on Facebook that in order to thwart the police from doing this, the big evil police trying to identify the protesters for this good cause of protecting the Native American land, to do a false check-in to the South uh, South Dakota protests. And this way, with so many fake check-ins there, the police will not be able to use this data. So if there's really a 1,000 people there and there's 100,000 check-ins, well, that becomes useless, which is true. 
Well, before I knew this was not even true and it was a hoax, I already had a criticism for it because I saw, by the time I saw it, it, it literally had a million check-ins. It actually had a million check-ins. And yet it didn't stop these people on Facebook, on my feed, Facebook friends of mine, I'm sorry to say, from sharing this, saying, please do this to help. This is a great cause. Check in. Help out the protesters. So I clicked on it and took a look, and I said, uh, you know, there's a million check-ins already. If the, I don't even know if this is really happening, but if it was, it's already been ruined. The police can't – this is not useful for the police anymore with a million check-ins. So no point to share this anymore. It's it's done. You've uh, – mission accomplished. It's over. Boy, did I get anger. What? Every little bit helps. No, actually, it doesn't. It's already been – if there's a million check-ins, it, it, it's done. There's a, The police will not use it anymore. Look, it's still a good cause. Everybody still check in. I go, no, they shouldn't. It's it's a waste of time. It's not going to hurt anything if they do, but you're you're not helping anything at this point. The 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 matter is complete. It's finished. Well, I got people. People were so angry at me, and they understood my point. They weren't dumb, but they wanted to share this because they wanted to come off as a good person. This is slacktivism. How hard is it to share this on Facebook? It takes ten seconds. So they want to show that they care about the Native American people in South Dakota whose land's being commandeered for a pipeline. And uh, they, they want to show they care, and they want to show that they want to take part in holding back the, the police from identifying protesters by, by preventing this evil plan from succeeding. And then how dare I come and let everybody know that any further doing of this will not help that it's useless that sharing this is useless it's just wasting space and time to check in because (laughs) there's no way that that will have any effect whether it's real or not at this point and they were so mad they were so mad because they wanted to feel they're part of it they wanted to feel like they were really doing something and I ruined it for them. I ruined it for them. How dare you? That's what they said. That's what they said. How dare you? (laughs) I had people block me over that, by the way. And look, I said, I'm not going to comment on the cause, like, like and I, I didn't know at the time it was a hoax, but I was like, I'm not, look, you know, if, if you want to help, great, but I'm just, I'm just letting you know what you're doing is not helping. Every little bit's helping. No, it's not. That's the same type of emotion that makes people want to leave the auto tip in place, even though they know it goes to the cruise line, or they, not they know, they could know if they wanted to believe me, but it makes them not want to believe me, because it's easy to believe what makes you feel like you're a good person. You want to feel like you're helping. And I'm against that sort of thing. I'm all for giving real help that's that's of real assistance. I'm against doing something to make yourself feel good. I'm against donating to the social media star of the week, like Target Tory, who doesn't need the money or has way too much money already for what has happened. Because that's, it becomes about your own vanity. You have that money to give away, give it to something that's more meaningful, that's going to make a direct help. This is why I like the fact that people donate to this free roll. 
you donate to this free roll, you're giving money that's directly going to be won by others who listen to this show. Presumably you're giving the money because you like the show, you appreciate the show, and you want to help the show and others who enjoy it like you do to play in this free roll and, and win money in it. And that's exactly what it appears to be. And uh, it's not about making yourself feel good. You know whatever you donate goes directly to, to people who win, and you have a clear reason for doing it. And you're doing it because you enjoy a, a product that's being delivered to you, which in this case is the show. Or maybe you've gotten to like the, the community of people who listen to it. That That's a type of donation that's that's great. Or if you, if you want to help people that are in need, there's a, a friend who's struggling for money that you know it's uh, not their fault or if it is their fault, you like them, you want to help them anyway. That's fine too. You want to donate to a charity that's you're sure is doing good work and not wasting the money. That's good too. But don't just don't just donate for the purpose of donating or do things that you think are helpful, but in reality you're just making yourself feel good. That check-in in South Dakota was such a great example of that. And I'm like exactly the opposite of that person. I'm exactly the opposite of the sheep who's going to do that to make himself feel good. Uh, and and, and you, know, you may say I'm being a hypocrite here because I will get involved in situations that are not ones that have to do with me like in poker and gambling and scams going on. And you may say, well, maybe I'm just doing this to make myself feel good. And it, while it does feel good to when I have an impact, uh, no, I'm just doing it because I think it's the right thing just to speak up because like, I don't mind speaking up about things. But uh, I, uh, I only want to help those who I deserve, feel deserve the help in situations which I feel deserve the assistance. I'm not saying I'm never a hypocrite in anything in my life. I don't think anybody can say that. But uh, I try to avoid slacktivism. And I try to avoid feeling good about anything that's standard. And I try to avoid the uh, fad of the week as far as where to send your money. Anyway, just wanted to get all that out. But uh, Europe has it right with the tipping. They really do. Some cultures actually have it where it's insulting to give a tip. I think some Asian cultures are like that, where if you give a tip, it's considered insulting. I think Europe has it most correct, where if, if you think someone's done something out of the ordinary, then throw them a little extra. If they're just doing their job in a standard fashion, then... No, just let them get paid by their employer, which is hopefully a fair wage. And don't get me wrong, I want everybody to make a fair wage. I want everyone to get paid something that would make sense for uh, the job they're doing, the skill that is required for the job, the training or education that was required for the job. And that is the reality we should strive for. We're never going to get that completely. There will be people who are overpaid for what they do and people who are underpaid. But that's what we should strive for. It may feel good to 
leave a huge tip for the people at the expensive restaurants. But uh, and you can. I'm not. I don't ever tell people how to spend their money. I'm just saying that you can't feel good about it. Just if you want to do it, do it. But you can't feel good about doing that. Now, if you if you are doing that and you are being generous to everybody else you encounter, like the fast food employees, the people mopping the floor, if you do that too, okay, great. Then <laughs> then you're covered. I would just like to see the whole culture done away with and everybody's paid something that's reasonable. That would be best. Okay, we're done. Before I completely turn off the show here, I want to tell you something. As I mentioned earlier. We are going to have some kind of weird schedule next week because of the Super Bowl. We're definitely not going to have a show during the Super Bowl. Uh, in fact, I'm going to be watching the Super Bowl with some people I know through this show. <laughs> so I, I definitely will not be uh, doing the show during the Super Bowl or right after or anything like that. Um, the other days of the weekend, I'm not sure. So I can't tell you what day it's going to be on, but there, I'll find a day to do it next week. Though it may not be Friday like we've been doing our shows recently. If I end up doing it at a weird hour, there also won't be a free roll. So if it's a, like a 1 a.m. show or something, there's no free roll. So we'll see about that. Check twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert for that information. Trader Ruski, uh, thank you for being part of the show. Can you hear me, by the way? You may not be able to hear me over the music. Escape is funny. Oh, no, he's, go- he's gone. <laughs> we lost him, like, a minute ago. We, we literally lost him a minute ago. I haven't, like, even asked if he's there in the longest time that I ask if he's there, and he's gone a minute ago. Figures. Okay. If you're going to be at the L.A. Poker Classic, uh, let me know. I might or might not be there at the same time as you. Kind of there and not there. But if you'll be around, you let me know. 775-372-8355 is the text number. You can text me anytime at that phone number. And I'll probably get back to you. And that's it. We'll see what happens next week. I'll try to resist talking about Prahlad Friedman next week, no matter what he tweets. I kind of felt bad about talking about him two weeks in a row. Not that I feel bad for him, but just for the listener having to put up with this. But I'll try not to talk about him a third week in a row, okay? I'll try. No promises, though. Twitter.com slash PokerFraudAlert for updates of when the next show is. That's all for tonight. Good night and shalom.